standpoint for WWF fans all over the world. That's why. Okay, wh what what does that mean? What exactly are you trying to say? That means that I was simply saving the main event. That's what it means. Saving the main event at WrestleMania. How are you saving the main event at WrestleMania? How could Stone Cold Steve Austin compete against Shawn Michaels for the WWE title at WrestleMania with a broken jaw? Whoa! <laughs> and Luna Big Splash, her own tag team partner. I can't believe it! No way! Powerbomb! We have a powerbomb, Luna! He's got the cover in an air ball! He kicked out! He kicked out! Sable, counter, wait a minute, Sable, can she, don't tell me, yes, oh, TKO, you gotta be kidding, Sable, with a TKO, oh, I heard Hulk Hogan come out on television saying I couldn't cut the mustard, well Hulk Hogan, you suck pal, you have any room to talk about anybody cutting any kind of mustard. And Hulk, I got, I got some more advice for you. You better not stop short or Eric Bischoff will go so far up your ass, he'll know what you had for breakfast. <laughs> He's put everybody down with Sweet Chin Music. And he has put Austin down before as well, as we know. Austin back up somehow. Uh-oh. Austin ducked it. Austin going for the stutter. And Michael's counter. Michael's going for another kick. Austin. He got it. The stutter. Mike Tyson in. Austin is the champion. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to March of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Four volumes for this month. Volume number 2 takes the WCW looking at Uncensored. Volume 3 to ECW looking at their latest pay-per-view Living Dangerously. And Volume number 4 takes a look at Pride MMA. We're here in Volume number 1 looking at the WWF and WrestleMania 14. I'm being joined first by Eric Lashram. Eric, a very good early morning to you. Hello. A sunny spring morning to you as well, Bob. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, not quite. 
cold still in uh, in March in, in, in London, but there we are. And a good afternoon, Rory McNara. Rory, hello. Greetings, one and all. Uh, Rory, kick us off with the news. I shall. And Stone Cold Steve Austin is the new WWF champion. He defeated Shawn Michaels in the main event of WrestleMania at the Boston Fleet Centre. After nailing a stunner and with special guest enforcer Mike Tyson getting in the ring to deliver a three count. Jim Ross on commentary declared, the Austin era has begun. Iron Mike could actually join DX at the start of the month, but he sealed his turn on HBK by knocking him out with a punch and placing an Austin 316 shirt over him after the match. Whilst it is not impossible that Tyson will return at some point to be in Austin's corner, plans for the new champ going forward do appear to be somewhat sketchy. On the Raw following WrestleMania, Austin was presented with a new title belt, meaning the Winged Eagle has made its final flight, and it looks as though his first feud will be with Vince McMahon, with the boss wanting Steve to do things the easy way. Of course, Austin prefers the hard way and dropped the big cheese with a stunner. And WrestleMania itself was a warmly received show, which, despite containing no particularly stellar in-ring action, did deliver all the results that the fans and pay-per-view audience paid to see. In the semi-main event, The Undertaker was able to defeat his brother Kane by pinfall, but only after hitting him with three tombstone pile drivers. Kane and Paul Bear got their heat back after the match, too, and this feud is set to continue. Evil Heel Kane actually got one of the pops of the night before the contest when he attacked in Tombstone none other than disgraced World Series winner, the Hit King, Pete Rose, who had himself turned on the crowd beforehand. Other than Rose and Tyson, the remaining celebrity involvement came from Bill Clinton's close personal friend, Jennifer Flowers, which should tell you where the direction of the company is heading. As for the in-ring action, the other winners on the night were the LOD 2000, Takamichi Noku, Triple H, the team of Sable and Mark Merrow, The Rock, and Cactus Jack, and Chainsaw Charlie. In addition to the Austin McMahon feud seeming to begin in earnest, the March 30th Raw put into play some hot angles and storylines to take us through the spring. Most notable of these was Triple H forming the DX Army, where he all but completely ignored the existence of Shawn Michaels, and instead looked to his friends, his blood, the click, and reintroduced none other than Shawn Walkman. Freshly fired from WCW and with a bone to pick about it, Walkman cut a fiery shoot promo in which Messrs. Hogan and Bischoff were severely dressed down and pals Hall and Nash were declared to be held hostage by World Championship Wrestling. Walkman, who is currently still going by the name The Kid, will be paid a downside guarantee of up to $350,000, a huge increase on his salary in Atlanta. At the end of the show, the New Age Outlaws also joined DX, when Helmsley and co. helped them take back the tag titles from Cactus and Chainsaw in a short cage match. And here we go again. The events of Montreal show no signs of going away. In an interview for TSN's Off the Record, Vince McMahon stated on that fateful night in November, Bret Hart left him with no choice. Vince said, I couldn't just take a risk that he was going to just walk out and leave the fans all over the world with nothing. McMahon also claimed that he didn't believe reasonable creative control meant that Hart had control over actual match finishes, which seems revisionist at best. Good lawyer there. McMahon discussed a wide range of topics, taking in everything from the departure of Ahmed Johnson, quote, he hurt a lot of people and started believing his own publicity, to expressing regret at the loss of Hall and Nash. We stayed out of guaranteed contracts as long as we could. 
judging by Vince's tone, don't expect to see Hulk Hogan back in a WWF ring anytime soon. However, the Hulkster is not as big as he thinks he is. And VKM had few warm words for many other legends of the past either. Ultimate Warrior is a lunatic. Jesse Ventura is overrated. And Bruno San Martino, a confused individual possibly suffering from dementia. As for the current product, there are no limits other than no guns, no knives, no rapes, no robberies. <laughs> that went well. A name Let's from see. the olden days who could be making a return to New York, though, is that of Ric Flair. Sources close to the Nature Boy say that breaking his current WCW contract might not be that difficult to achieve. It is said he would jump at the chance to accept even a respectable offer from the WWF. Such is his level of frustration at Down South. Stephen Regal is close to agreeing terms with the company, possibly accompanied by Bill Sir William Dundee. And intriguingly, the Giants could make the switch, as his terms with WCW are almost at an end, and at time of recording, he doesn't seem all that keen to re-sign. None other than John Tenter is also in line for a job, but which act of God or C-Bound Leviathan he'll be portraying this time is currently unknown. I'd only get him in if Roddy Piper could, you know, do, do his best. Do, do the work to, to lay the groundwork to return to John Tenter and actually get a pop for it. There we are. <laughs> Reminder that we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. He'd like to say thank you and get early access to our shows where possible. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS links in the podcast description and on our website onto the ratings for the month. Nitro Day 4.8 to Rules 3.8 on March the 9th. Nitro Day 4.6 to Rules 3.6 on March the 16th. Nitro Day Big 5.1. That did help by the fact that Raw wasn't on that night. It was actually on the Tuesday. Uh, Raw still did a massive 4.4 on a brand new night, which just is a you know illustration, nothing else, that wrestling is hot. However, um, which way you want to slice it. And then on March 23rd, Nitro Day 4.6 to Raw's 3.6, and we don't have the ratings yet for the end of the month. WrestleMania month begins in Cleveland, Ohio on the 2nd of March. After a PPV style open detailing the Austin DX Tyson story so far, here are Michaels and co to start the show off. Helmsley calls Mania X-Rated and then asks for parents to get their children's permission to watch it. Yep. He will go through heart like a hot knife through butter. HBK and DX have an offer to make Tyson later on tonight and they strongly advise that he accepts it. At WrestleMania... Michaels will show that the toughest SOB is just not tough enough. The glass shatters and here comes Stone Cold, but the lights quickly go out as Kane's music strikes up. Bearer says that Austin won't need to worry about WrestleMania, as tonight Kane will send him straight to hell. Steve then takes the headset. If he's meant to be scared, he isn't. The outlaws gingerly come to the ring whilst wearing neck braces. We see new footage of the cactus and chainsaw attack from last week from a very convenient in-car New Age Outlaw cam. First degree murder charges have been pressed and they are too injured to compete. But Slaughter disagrees and says they must defend the titles right now. So our first match is for New Age Outlaws against Skull and 8-Ball. It doesn't last long as Jack and Charlie emerge from a nearby dumpster to chase the heels off. Mero takes on his old friend Tom Brandy. Luna appears at ringside and then trips Tom from the outside, and the TKO is good for the win. Luna then plants a kiss on Mero, and then she and Goldust beat him down. Sable shows up and gets some of Luna. Mero is unhappy that Sable came to help, and she then slaps him. 
Owen defends the European title against Mark Henry. On the third try, Owen puts the sharpshooter on. He breaks the hold after distraction from China, who shoves him into a Henry bear hug. But she then low blows the world's strongest man for the DQ. She did it because she can. The headbangers and Taka are in the ring. They will face the Rock and Roll Express and Barry Windham, who come down to the old rockers theme. Thrasher takes Cornet's racket and hits Gibson for the win. Vince starts the second hour by introducing Tyson. Mike is about to speak with DX Storm the ring. HBK makes things clear. Unlike Austin, they will treat him like a man. But Sean is calling his ass out right now. And Tyson wants to do it. The ring clears and the two men jaw. The crowd are going balmy as Mike invites Sean to throw the first punch. But instead HBK tears off Tyson's WWF shirt to reveal a DX one. The baddest man on the planet is a degenerate. Steve Blackman is against Karma. Farouk and The Rock hop in to end this one early. Shamrock runs down to ringside to make the save. Robert Parker is here and he introduces Double J Jeff Jarrett. Yes, he's back with the flashing light costume and the country singer gimmick and the world's greatest thing and ain't I great and all that. The NWA were not prepared for a man of Double J's stature. Only one person can promote Jarrett and he is Tennessee Lee. Double J is now in action against Flash. The Colonel, sorry, Tennessee pushes Funk off the top rope and Jarrett wins with the figure of four. Cole tries to grab word with Tyson as he leaves. Triple H says Mike wants to be associated with winners and Tyson himself then pipes up with Stone Cold will be knocked out. Kane is in the ring as Bearer invites Austin to the pits of hell. Stone Cold comes through the curtain but immediately Sean wipes him out with sweet chin music. He then comes to his feet and storms to the back. Paul orders Mark Yeaton to toll the bell ten times in memory of The Undertaker. And he of course then takes a chokeslam and tombstone. Bearer says that Kane has one tombstone left for somebody and then the gong hits. A coffin appears at the top of a ramp. A lightning bolt strikes it and The Undertaker sits up. You cannot destroy that which does not wish to perish. He now has to do the one thing he promised not to do. And he will walk through the fires of hell to fight Kane. The next stop on the road to WrestleMania on the 9th of March is at Wheeling, West Virginia. We actually started with a match, pitting The Rock and Farouk against Shamrock and Blackman. There's intermittent interference on screen during this one, which was followed by interference of the more common variety when the nation attack. Rock went Shamrock for himself and Farouk acquiesces, but when Ken gets the better of it, Farouk refuses to let the NOD help. Helmsley and China are here. They replay the footage of Austin getting super kicked on the ramp from last week over and over. And then we get to see Sean. But he is not at the arena due to prior commitments. He's at an empty bar. He calls Austin a fad and once more repeats that he does not lay down for anybody. Sean actually looked visibly unwell in that segment. Owen puts the European title up versus Wyndham as the technical difficulties continue. China low blows Owen on the outside and Barry wins by countout. Bradshaw comes out to get a piece of Wyndham afterwards. Lawler interviews Paul Bearer in Kane's locker room. Paul refuses to talk about The Undertaker, but then the locker room bench seats keep raising and falling of seemingly their own accord, and then Paul scampers off. King is back to cheer on Christopher in his match with Aguila. The lights flicker in the building as it goes on. 
Aguila goes for a 450, but Lawler yanks him off the rope for the disqualification. Tucker then breaks up the father and son post-match attack. Austin storms to the ring. He gets the boys in the truck to play the clip from last week of Vince calling Tyson unquestionably the baddest man on the planet. He demands that McMahon comes out and holds the show hostage until he does. He gets Briscoe and Lanza instead, but they are not who he's looking for. Same goes for Slaughter and Patterson. Eventually, he gets Vince. Austin is sick of McMahon blowing smoke up Tyson's ass. He then rips McMahon's suit and demands that he hit him, but the boss instead sheepishly leaves. The crowd were with Austin, of course, but the commentary team favoured the boss during this exchange, which is interesting. Jack and Charlie face the Quebecers. A double-arm DDT to Jack is good for the victory. Road Dog comes out in a sling and goes Cactus to fight him on the ramp, but the distraction allows Billy Gunn to whack Chainsaw with a chair. Bearer and Kane are in the ring now. Undertaker should have rested in peace, but now he has returned. He has stepped right back into an inferno. The lights go out, and they come back to show us Taker is in the ring. They go out again, and then he disappears. An apoplectic bearer then screams that this is not a game. Both Luna and Sable are handcuffed to ring posts for Goldust versus Mero. The ref gets bumped and then Goldust leg drops him so he can steal the key. Luna is freed and she scrawls and smears makeup all over Sable's face. In the back, Goldust challenges Mero and Sable to a mixed tag match at WrestleMania. JR talks to Tyson backstage. He accuses Austin of disrespecting him by flipping him off back in January. JR says that DX use people, but Tyson doesn't mind that as you have to use people to get anywhere in life. As for being a fair enforcer at WrestleMania, get with the program JR, fair is winning. Triple H Savio lasts about 5 seconds before Austin does his thing. He stuns everybody in his path until Michael shows up out of nowhere to deliver sweet chin music. He goes to smash Austin with a chair before we fade to black. Man, you just lost control. Mike Tyson, my name is not Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I want to make things real clear to you, Mike. We are not out here to disrespect you Uh-oh. like Steve Austin did. That's not Degeneration X's style. But what our style is, Mike, is to call people out face to face. So Iron Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet. My name is the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels, the World Wrestling Federation Champion. And what I'm doing right now is treating you like a man. But make no mistake about it, Mike. I am calling your ass out right now, right here, boy. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. You want to do it? Let's do it right now. Here we go. You get your people out of here, I'll get my people out of here, and you and me will handle this man to man. Sean Michaels, can you say Mitch Green? Sean Michaels and Mike Tyson are fixing the title. John, this may be a big mistake. Oh, here we go! And, well, I'll tell you, I... Don't try to stop it, JR. I want to, the world wants to see this! Look at McMahon's, McMahon's going nuts, but he's out of the ring! 
He sees WrestleMania slipping right through his finger. Now, this is not sanctioned. TVs for the first two TVs of the month anyway, there's four of them before WrestleMania, so we'll, we'll divide them into two. Um, Rory, I, I think there is only one place to start, which is, you know, the, is the, the, the Mike Tyson turn, if you like, uh, aligning with the Generation X. Um, I, I, I've got broader thoughts on the Tyson stuff leading into the pay-per-view that we, we may well cover in this block. Um, but what did you think of the, the, the angle itself and the moment? Was it as as big and as important and as necessary as perhaps they hoped? Uh, I think certainly in the there and now, it definitely was. They saved it for the top of the second hour, which is basically the Michael's portion of the show. <laughs> it has been for the last few months. So it was clearly something they were making a big deal of it. And I thought they played it off really well. They They had me for the first three or four minutes. Michaels did all the talking. Tyson gave his one line and sounded reasonably confident. And when it looked like the two of them were going to rock, they, the, the crowd really did go with them. They really wanted to see Tyson knock this guy's block off. In the end, they'd have to wait a few weeks for that, but never mind. And the turn, it surprised me. I didn't think that's where they were going to go right down until the very second. As soon as it happened, I thought, ah, okay, I know what you're doing. Tyson's getting a few boos anyway. Let's make sure it stays that way until WrestleMania. You can easily explain away why he's into Generation X because he's the biggest degenerate of all. And they made a situation which I'm still not absolutely convinced is a road they wanted to go down. When Tyson first came in in January and he was going to be the special enforcer for the match at Mania, were they going to turn him heel beforehand? Was that really the plan? Did they realise they actually had a few more shots out of him before the end of March and tried to get as much as they could? Probably, but I think it worked well. The actual turn back, I do have my issues with, but we'll get to that when we get there. But yeah, it was well done. Eric, was this a good logical plot point, plot development, or was this kind of them clutching at straws in an attempt to keep, dare I say, keep Tyson relevant four weeks out from WrestleMania? You know, you're onto something there in the sense of they, they may have introduced Tyson a little too early and they may have, you know, uh, burnt the flame a little too hot uh, at the outset. Uh, but no, I th- that being said, I think this was an excellent segment. I think this was an excellent plot point. We can't lose focus of the fact that this entire scheme, this entire storyline, Vince and Sean and Tyson and, and everybody else, this is all aimed at at putting Stone Cold Steve Austin on the tallest 
pedestal possible and stacking the deck against him and giving him the most insurmountable odds that have ever been uh, potentially overcome in order to really just continue this this mammoth momentum and build that that they've been working on for a year now plus basically WrestleMania to WrestleMania. So, uh, you know, while we can kind of put on our logic hats and put on our, our critical hats and say, well, it doesn't really make sense for Tyson to join DX for this reason or that reason, or maybe it's a little bit stale, or, or maybe there's just there's just too many twists and turns and we should be focused on Austin and Michaels and that match. Um, no, I think this was really good because it just – I mean, you listen to the crowd and Vince comes out and he's booed and booed out of the building. And then DX comes out and they're booed out of the building. And then Tyson comes out and he's booed out of the building. And they're just embracing the fact that Mike Tyson is a natural heel. He's a jerk. He's a guy that's done some pretty deplorable things in his past. And he has a notable celebrity for that reason at this point, almost as much as he does from his boxing career. And so you have these three natural heels in Vince, Sean and Tyson, and it makes sense they would essentially align in order to try to topple this this you know uh, interloper in Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I think this was a good plot point to prevent Mike Tyson from getting stale and to put a little bit more gas on that flame uh, because it sure made for a hell of a hot main event. Yeah, I, it may have been the best option they had. I, I just don't know whether they had a great list of options. Um, Eric, as I kind of alluded to, and you kind of said a bit more explicitly, I, you know, one, one, I think, you know, they've, they've been wrong on this before and they'll probably be wrong on it again. I think they bought Tyson in, expected a, a probably a slightly different reaction to the one they've got in or the one they, they got rather in terms of, I just think they thought they'd bring Tyson and he'd be this big star. And a lot of people would just be like either really pleased to see him or he just awestruck that it's Mike Tyson. And as it was, there was probably a little bit more vitriol than perhaps they were thinking. Um, and you know, they did the whole thing at the beginning of last month with the, the, the press conference, the announcements, him being the, the, the kind of special guest enforcer, which was a bit, flat i thought in terms it was like a a kind of a bit like this move as well it was perhaps the 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 best option they had it was perhaps the most viable option they had but i don't think it was necessarily such a great idea um i'm still of the opinion that tyson would have been better off as the referee here um you know actually kind of you know i know it would have been a bit weird him yeah mike tyson in the the black and white stripes yeah running around the ring and counting 10 counts and stuff um you know, and we'll get to his involvement in the match later on the show. Um, but it, you know, the angle was well done. I, I can't disagree with that. I think, you know, the, the crowd reacted as they wanted them to react. And I think it was a, a, you know, a good plot point. But Rory, were they, were they short here? What, four weeks after WrestleMania? Was this the, the only option? Because otherwise there was nothing really to do with Tyson. Yeah, that I definitely agree with. I would say that the whole Austin Michaels build was pretty much done Last month, if you go through the Raws, as good as they've been on the whole, Austin and Michaels didn't have a whole lot of interaction. The whole build-up to the match was, can Austin survive the super kick? Which, for me, that's a that's the sort of thing you level on for a, a B-grade pay-per-view. <coughs> sort of in your house, something like that. A, a rematch, that sort of thing. Didn't feel like the ultimate build-up to a huge WrestleMania match. And throwing Tyson into the DX mix gave DX something else to do to pass the time. 
I mean, Austin wasn't really getting involved with them to any real sense. So, but in a way, it was a good thing. It was a bit of a life raft. If they hadn't done that, then I think March leading up to Mania might have been a bit of a washout. Here, they were able to buy themselves some time and they just about used it and giving themselves huge quarter hours, such as JR giving a sit-down interview with Tyson, asking why he joined DX. They wouldn't have been able to do that if Tyson was just a smiling celebrity who's going to be an enforcer at the end of the month. So, yes, I do think it was partly down to circumstance. Might not have been their original plan, but they more than got away with it. Well, and let's not forget, this roster is still incredibly thin, and so yes. we're running... We're running, you know, two-hour raws and and pay-per-views every month. When you're, when the roster is as thin as it as it is, uh, even as for as hot as the product is right now, you kind of have to recycle these pieces and ideas in order to fill the time constructively. They can't just bring out, you know, two you know B-level superstars like Scott Hall and and the Giant and have a you know a match on night like they, they can do on Nitro. They don't have that ability. So they have to be more creative in the WWF to fill the time because they have a roster that's probably a quarter of the size of WCW at this point. I mean, my goodness, it's so thin. I, it's it's ridiculous. It's a quarter of the size now, but give it about three months. The way uh, the, the, the way the talents try to get out of WCW and make the jump across. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I just think that they, you know, uh, Tyson. I don't want to say he's not a magic bullet in the sense that, that you know he's his anything you do with Mike Tyson is probably better than anything else you could do without him. Um, you know, so the, a, a bad storyline booked involving Mike Tyson will probably be more beneficial to everyone involved than a good one without him, just because he's Mike Tyson. So in that sense, it was fine. In the sense, the angle was good. I just kind of figured they just kind of got here and went, ugh. Um, because it's not like Tyson being in DX really went anywhere. It's not like it was a massive development point. And, you know, it's, you know, I think as, uh, as Dave Meltzer said, you know, people who, uh, who, who, who bought WrestleMania to see Mike Tyson will probably end up being a bit disappointed by his involvement. But then again, if you've probably ever bought a Mike Tyson pay-per-view recently, you probably would be as well. Um, so there we are. I certainly didn't appreciate it. I thought it was highly unprofessional. I don't appreciate sign language, much less sign language in my face. Nonetheless, I can understand giving Austin the benefit of the doubt. What was on his mind? I mean, just a week prior to that, Austin had been stunned. He had been stunned indeed by the mental acumen, if you would, of Shawn Michaels when he shocked Austin and the whole world by bringing Mike Tyson into DX. The situation, though, did not end there. In fact, Stone Cold continued on his tirade. If we could take a look once again to the Titantron and once again what happened last week. In this instance, Stone Cold Steve Austin basically daring you to hit him. Please, if we could take a look at that. Please. I think we had enough of the footage. I'm like giving you the first it. shot, so give me your best shot. Because if I hit you first, you're going to be laying on the damn mat in a heap. So give me your best shot. Give me your best shot right there. Now go ahead and hit me. I'm not looking. Blindside me. Show some guts, you yellow bastard. Hit me. Do something. Why? Why didn't you hit him? Yeah. What? (laughs) Why did you not hit Stone Cold Steve Austin last week? Because I do what I do from a professional standpoint for WWF fans 
all over the world. That's why. Okay, what 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 does that mean? What exactly are you trying to say? That means that I was simply saving the main event. That's what it means. Saving the main event at WrestleMania. How are you saving the main event at WrestleMania? How could Stone Cold Steve Austin compete against Shawn Michaels for the WWE title at WrestleMania with a broken jaw? Whoa! <laughs> well, he ain't gonna be Mayor of Phoenix anytime There's soon. There's one more. It's a special Tuesday night edition of Raw on the 17th in Phoenix, Arizona. And appropriately for St. Patrick's Day, Shamrock is here to get things rolling. Sadly, though, it's in the form of an interview. He tells Kevin Kelly he will beat the people's chin to continental champion at Mania. Rocky interrupts with the nation in tow. Ken should learn to know his role and shut his mouth. Rock calls the shot, and he says the bout will be on the line tonight if Shamrock can last two minutes with a nation member. My via nominates Delo, and we're on. Ken is about to win with the ankle lock before Rocky destroys him with two despicable chair shots. Farouk chides the rock over it, but he's far from contrite. Shamrock sells a concussion afterwards. Sable is out with a mic, and she ain't holding back. She has had it with that little bitch Luna. She wants a fight tonight. Tennessee Lee introduces Double J, who comes to the ring on a white horse to face Tom Brandy. Jarrett wins easily with the figure of four. Rocky briefly interrupts again, this time to tell us that he laid the smack down on Shamrock and is sure he won't now make it to Mania. The headbangers go against the Rock and Roll Express and Jim Cornette. The bangers win after it's stage dive and Ricky. But of all people, Bob Holly and Bart Gunn, in matching tights, come to Jim's rescue. Cornette then announces them as the new Midnight Express, and for old time's sake, they attack the rock and roll with Jim's blessing. Ah, the more things change. To close the first hour, the Phoenix Suns Gorilla is here to entertain the hometown crowd, but Kane soon puts a stop to that. Owen and his leg cast are here to join us on commentary for the second hour, which begins with Chainsaw vs Billy Gunn. Billy has it won with two pile drivers, but he pulls Terry up. That's a big mistake as Funk responds with DDTs. Road Dog drops the mic to interfere, but then Cactus comes to the rescue by supplying Terry with a rope, which he then wraps around Jesse's feet. Jack then winces James upside down. He hangs suspended, whilst Mick then cheerfully admits he doesn't know how to get him down. Kevin Kelly talks to Vince, who is greeted by booze. Austin was unprofessional last week, and his sign language was not appreciated. He didn't hit Austin because Vince was saving the main event at WrestleMania for us fans. And after all, Stone Cold couldn't show up for it with a broken jaw. KK then addresses the elephant in the room. Does Vince want Austin to be WWF champion? After a lot of goading and prodding, the boss tells us, It's not just a no, it's a oh hell no. And that's the bottom line, because Vince McMahon said so. Wow. Triple H is here surrounded by referees. He accuses Owen of hiding behind a commentator's desk. If he was a man, he would accept his challenge for the European title right now. He shoves Owen over, and that makes Hart's decision for him as the bell rings. China smashes him in the injured ankle with a bat, and HHH wrenches back on it as the ref stops the match. Helmsley is the new European champion. Sable and Luna are out for their confrontation, 
and despite officials' best efforts, they get some shots in on each other. Sable favours her knee as the ring clears, and here's Kane again. Mero bails to get help whilst Kane stands over her, but the bells toll. Undertaker is on top of the Titantron. Kane will know his name as the Lord of Darkness. An effigy of Kane in a casket is then set on fire by a lightning bolt, and it burns and burns. The road to WrestleMania makes its final stop on the 23rd of March in Tucson, Arizona, and Austin is here. He does what he wants when he wants, and can't nobody stop him. Kelly informs Stone Cold that DX are on their way to the arena with full force, but that's fine with Steve, as he's got a night off. But Slaughter then waddles in to tell Austin he will in fact wrestle tonight by order of Vince McMahon. Tonight Stone Cold must face The Rock, because if he doesn't, the match at Mania will be non-title. Austin feels insulted and takes it out on Sarge. You know how. Cactus and Chainsaw hook it up with the Quebecers. As it goes on, the outlaws appear on the ramp in black tyre tyre and throw a dinner party, but then interfere for the DQ. They attack Funk with a champagne bucket and break the folding table over his head, and Foley takes a spike pile driver onto a chair. Jarrett versus Blackman is next. Tennessee grabs Steve's foot on a superplex and holds it down, allowing Double J to score a three count. We now go to The Undertaker at his parents' graveside. Looked like a soundstage to me, but never mind. He asks his mother for forgiveness over the heinous sin he is about to commit. A sin which has to be done. After WrestleMania, he hopes they will all be a family again. But for now, he will look destiny in the eye and go where the Reaper leads him. Kane and Bearer are in the ring. Paul invites Kane to demonstrate he has the same powers as his brother. He summons a lightning bolt to put out the lighting rig and another to strike out the monitors on the announce table, followed by one on a spotlight by the big screen. His last act is to set one of the crew members on fire. Bearer blames it and everything else on The Undertaker. The only way to follow that is, of course, DOA versus Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart. Various tag teams who will be in the Battle Royal on Sunday come down to observe, and it spills into the ring with everybody beating up everybody else. DX start the second hour. Triple H opens up by saying that although China will be handcuffed to the chin at WrestleMania, he will send Owen Hart back to Calgary and cripple him for good. After playfully joshing with an enthusiastic female fan in the front row, HBK gets down to business. He appreciates Vince's support in not wanting Austin to be WWF champion, but he does not and never will respect the boss and his sweaty jockstrap. Michaels is the greatest champion of all time, and with Tyson as the enforcer, Stone Cold doesn't have a chance. If Austin gets in Mike's face, he will knock him the out. DX will rule the WWF forever. Farouk V. Chains is up now. Rock comes in with a chair to help, but accidentally nails Farouk instead. The rest of the nation don't think it was inadvertent. The new blackjacks explode. Wyndham gets distracted by the rock and roll outside, and Bradshaw rolls him up for the pin. The new Midnight Express attack afterwards. Mero and Sable are here. Just tonight, he is going to allow her to bask in the glory of the award she is about to receive for making January 1998's edition of Raw magazine a big seller. Vince Russo presents it to her, but here come Luna and Goldust. Luna grabs the plaque and smashes her in the face with it. Again, Mero doesn't offer much help. Austin vs. Rock is our main event. 
This one is all punches and middle fingers until Austin hits the stunner for the clean win, perhaps surprisingly. DX are on the ramp, and Michaels tells Stone Cold that at Mania, he will turn his lights out for the last time. Instance last week that I wanted to show you. Yeah! If we can, roll the tape, the last piece of videotape I've selected. If we can, take a look. Stone Cold's last uh, parting words, I guess you could say, for the WWF owner, Vince McMahon. If you want me to kick him square in his ass, give me a hell yeah. You better get your ass to step in or it's going to happen. Ten seconds. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You're damn right. Now get your ass up there. I'll tell you one thing, Kevin Kelly maybe ordered you out of your own ring. How did that make you feel? How did it make me feel? I've seen that look. Yeah. Again, I do what I do. We're all of the WWF fans all over the world. And it certainly would not have looked good, or who knows what would have happened if I had taken Austin down. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Vince, there's... One other thing that happened last week to which we never got an answer, I want to ask you that question right now. Stone Cold asked you, do you want to see Stone Cold Steve Austin as a WWF champion, yes or no? What's the answer? I can tell you what the front office will say. Well, it really doesn't matter what I think. He is the front It matters what all of you, the WWF fans, think. Myself, asking you personally, do you want Stone Cold Steve Austin as the World Wrestling Federation champion? Um, Kevin Kelly's really pushing it. If Austin would be reasonable and listen to reason and be molded into a respectful WWF champion, that would be one thing. But if Austin becomes WWF champion as we know him now... That would be a public relations corporate nightmare. Right. You said all the buzzwords, said everything you wanted to say, but you still haven't answered the question, and the fans all want to know the answer to the question. The fans of the World Wrestling Federation all want to know the truth. What, like he's been lying up to now? I'm not so sure that you or the WWF fans, or for that matter, Stone Cold Steve Austin, can handle the truth. Thank you. Mr. McMahon, you still have not answered the question, yes or no. All right. It's not just a no, it's a oh hell no. <laughs> On to the second two blocks of TV. Uh, I, I think the the uh, the go home show for WrestleMania was a little bit flat, but that can happen. You know, it's the it's the tape show, and they generally load all the interesting stuff for the one that's live um 
and and they gave us a, a very interesting angle at the, near the top of the second hour or shortly after it. Um, Kevin Kelly comes out, introduces Vincent Mann, who at this point is just getting booed everywhere. It's great to see this transition, you know, like there's people are now used to it and it's some of it's osmosis and a lot of it's just being opposite Steve Austin. But Vincent Mann comes out now and he does get booed, which is a, a useful little development. Um, you know, and so so Kevin Kelly rolls the clip from from the week before on Raw, where Austin's goading Vince and tells him to hit him, and Vince doesn't. Um, and Kelly says, "You know, why didn't you hit him?" And in one of the best lines we've had in a long, long time for the WWF, Vince just went, "Well, how, how could Austin possibly win at WrestleMania if he showed up with a broken jaw?" <laughs> um, which is a tremendous piece of writing. Um, and then Kelly says, "You know." Do, does Vince McMahon want Steve Austin to be the WWF champion? And Vince kind of ducks about the subject for a while and then just goes, hell no. Um, Eric, this was tremendous. Uh, they've, they've, they've struck gold with this if they, if they keep it going. Vince McMahon, you know, he's been this, this, you know, everybody's favorite cheesy uncle. I think Rory is, this is one of your, takes is you know vince is everybody's favorite cheesy uncle when he's on 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 color commentary and what a maneuver and oh look at this and that kind of thing and he's just been kind of you know he's just been kind of the the friendly announcer for a while and then since montreal they they've they've tried to make him a sympathetic figure i guess and they they've quickly realized now that no vince vince is the heel vince is the the evil the evil boss the conniving the conniving jerk in charge who pulls all the strings and controls these wrestlers lives and that kind of thing. It also harkens back to a wonderful formula that kept Hulk Hogan over for almost 10 years, which is the, the, the Bobby Heen and heel factory. So I can envision a situation here where now you have Vince McMahon, who's not only the owner of the company and can make stone cold Steve Austin and any other face character that, that crosses, you know, Vince in a negative way. You know, he can control their lives as the owner, but he can also be that, you know, de facto manager of the heel factory and throw people at Austin and say, get that belt back, get get me my belt, you know, get get this guy out of my company. And you can see a future where I don't know who it would be. The rosters, they probably have to bring people in. Maybe that's where the giant comes in. Maybe that's where all these guys from WCW come in. Maybe that's how you introduce these guys is. Coming up next, you know, Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon's new way to get Austin, you know, get the belt off Austin. And now comes the Giant. And then they have a, a two-month, three-month feud and the Giant's in and that kind of thing. So Vince McMahon being as over as as the heel boss as he is really opens up a lot of doors, not only for, for storyline, but for matches for Stone Cold because he's not going to have Sean. He obviously is not going to have Brett. Where does he go? They've got to look elsewhere and build new stars or get new stars that are already established. And Vince is a great vehicle to do that. Roy. We say so often that the very best heels, when you look down deep down at what they've actually done, they can be seen as proved to be correct. I think that's absolutely the case here as well. Because in an unguarded moment, if you sat Vince McMahon down, I honestly reckon he would admit, maybe grudgingly, that he didn't really want to make this company change which has been coming since the end of 97 and is now in full force here he wants to be Mr. Family Entertainment he wants to be Walt Disney but for the last two years he's had his ass kicked trying to do that and now he's finally been dragged kicking and screaming to make the change 
And people want a WWF champion like Steve Austin. He is somebody people can really get behind because they see themselves in him. He is not some cartoonish superhero drawn up with the back rooms of, of Titan, Titan Sports. And Vince has taken what I think is still very legitimate. Okay, he might have accepted it by now, but this was not his plan. And so when he comes out there and says, I want a WWF champion who does this and does that and says the right things and goes to the right places and kisses the right babies and all that, there's more than a grain of truth there. And I also believe <laughs> that, yes, I'm going to say it, Vince McMahon probably could knock out Stone Cold Steve Austin in his own mind. It's, uh, it's not something I hope we ever get a chance to see for his sake, but moving swiftly on. But yeah, I loved it. And just the, the hubris of the man to steal Austin's catchphrase. It's not just a no, it's a oh, hell no. Because Vince McMahon said so. I mean, this man, let's say, he has been the cheesy uncle in the blue suit with his water manoeuvre and look at that and, and then from there and notwithstandings. We could be looking at one of the greatest heels in company history right here. It's uh, It's fantastic. And I think he is embracing it he's being what people want him to be and i think in time he's going to come to love it because right now i sure am i think you've both kind of quite rightly given a lot of context around you know vince's past and how we've got here and all the stuff surrounding it i I'd just like to focus on the promo itself um you know it's like it's like the kind of the person in your company and you find out after about three months working with them, they've got jokes um, it's just, but man, just, I like that. it's like, where did that come from? That's a great line. Like if Austin's character came out with that line, that'd be a, that'd be a line that'd be repeating for ages. Obviously it has to be in a, you know, the context doesn't really work. Um, but the, it, it, how could I, how could I possibly, you know, how could he perform WrestleMania with a broken jaw? That's such a good line. Um, and then the, everything else as well. Um, yeah, it's just like this kind of slightly pissed off Vince McMahon is really really compelling um Eric I think you touched on an interesting point in terms of one of the things I'd looked at and we may all discuss this more we we kind of run through the the roar after Wrestlemania but one of the things that I looked at um I was thinking about today was you know where does this really go from here you know we'll we'll, we'll cover it more in terms of but there's no real obvious foe for Austin right now other than Vince um and it's like well you know, that only is really going to pay off if someone can represent Vince. And I hadn't really put two and two together and thought the Giant might be a great idea. Um, funny enough, in my mind, I thought, you know, the, the perfect guy here will be Hulk Hogan. But, you know, that's a slightly different story. Um, but bringing in someone like that's the a very archetypal Vince guy to go after Austin um, could be really, really good. But we'll uh, we'll cover that later in the show. Um Rory, just before we go on to WrestleMania, um, it also gives you 30 seconds to, to find the results so you don't already have them with you. Uh, anything else in the four weeks of TV beforehand that, that, um, that, that kind of jumped out at you? I think we, we touched on the two key points, but was there anything else? Uh, just a quick point on the Kane Undertaker, uh, excuse me, the Kane Undertaker build. I think that these are some of the best promos that Undertaker has been cutting. It's a weird thing to say. We normally criticise people, I think rightly so, rightly so, want to just get on the mic and shout a bit. But here, Undertaker shouting how important it is that he's going to actually take Kane to the fires of hell, I think has really helped. And for me, it has overrode some of the more cartoony aspects. I didn't need to see them exchanging magic tricks and setting monitors on fire and having stuntmen running up the ramp. I didn't need that. When Undertaker says, well, mate, I've come back and now it's on. 
that's what I want to see. So what 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 have you guys thought about that? Well, I get the results. Uh, If you listen to the the 1997 year-end review, I basically spent two hours advocating to give as many awards as possible to Paul Bear and The Undertaker and Kane uh, because this has been a a wonderful uh, build. That said, they really lost me with Undertaker on the, the, the headset yelling at Kane and doing magic tricks and the the angle unfortunately seems to have lost steam just as the match is finally coming to be and so i i i respectfully appreciate how one could think those segments were awesome but for me they've gotten away from the the character building storyline and the family background and all that and they've gotten into all the hocus pocus and magic and that's just that's too much for me i i didn't think that the the last few segments building up to this Undertaker Kane match uh, were were particularly helpful, and I think it kind of it's you see it so many times throughout the show. It's 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 WWF unable to 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 fully uh, let go of this hokey hokum mid nineties bullshit that they that they're so fond of. Um, so yeah, I, unfortunately they kind of lost me at the last moment uh, before this this match, which has been building for almost two years. Yeah, we talk about them going a bit too early with the Tyson thing. I always kind of wonder if they went a bit too early with this one as well. Like a, a lot of the thing that, that worked really well with the, the Kane and Undertaker stuff was, you know, are they going to fight? I mean, obviously we knew they were going to. Um, but I almost kind of figured if they were going to do that bit so far out, i.e. the Royal Rumble, if they were going to put that plot point there, it almost might have been better off having them fight before WrestleMania. Um, just to add some kind of plot point to it, maybe Kane can beat him there if you want to do that. Yes. Um, I, I, I just kind of think that you, you do, you establish that we're going to do Kane and Undertaker, you know, uh, the Royal Rumble two months ago, two plus months, 10, 11 weeks, whatever it was. And then you kind of go, okay, what now? It's like, well, I want to see him fight now. And it's like, well, we got it, we got it planned for the end of March. Oh. Uh, now we've got to fill seven, eight weeks of television. And yeah, they, you know, I, I feel like had they needed to have filled two weeks of TV, that'd have been fine. But as much as they did, um, I don't know. Eric, respond to any of that and slash anything else from the TVs you, you wanted to bring up. Well, I'd be remiss as the, uh, as me and Jeff Parker kind of, uh, prop up the Hart family on this show more than anybody else would appreciate. And, <laughs> I would just be remiss to say that Owen Hart has officially, and, and, and this is not, this is not anything but, but factual. If you want to see what it looks like for somebody to be buried on television, how they've handled Owen Hart and, and, and Hunter Hearst Helmsley over the past six weeks, Owen Hart needs to go away for a while and, and, and then come back again. I mean, they have taken all the momentum that he could have had from Brett's departure and all that, and it is gone. And Owen is pointless at this point is, it, is it, it just that owen heart. hart is not that good bob how how the hell dare you I, if i were I in, just if i were in I, England I, right now i swear i, I i've been doing this show all well, right and I, a lot of people that that are on this show like him a lot of people that listen to this show like him rory i just don't see it like to me he's good but you know like maybe like maybe i, I take out heart over jeff jarrett right like, you know, he's better, he's better than Jeff Jarrett, but that's kind of it. Like, you know, if, if Jarrett's a six out of ten at everything, Owen Hart's maybe a six and a half out of ten at everything. Like, it's not, it's not much of an upgrade. 
better than Jeff Jarrett. Oh, Bob, your cup runneth over, doesn't it? Eric, I could be at Bob's house in two hours. Speaking of, speaking of owners slash managers. It is a bank holiday weekend, deal. Rory. Knowing the trains, it'd be at least four. Yeah, oh, I swear. <laughs> I, 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 I regret even bringing it up. Watch his match with Mark Henry on Raw this month and tell me, oh, it's not a miracle worker. But anyway, I've gotten us off track yet again. Rory, respond to any of that. <laughs> I'm going to put that one in the bank for, um, uh, for WrestleMania, I think. We'll, right. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. And uh, I will respectfully take both people's viewpoints. The main right. well, 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 well said. Uh, Rory, WrestleMania 14, kick us on with the results. WrestleMania 14, absolutely, from the Fleet Centre in Boston. Here are the results. And once again, I've got a long battle royal to talk about. The opening match were LOD 2000. Yes, the new Animal and Hawk with the same was Sonny. They won a battle royal to determine the number one contendership to the WWF Tag Team titles. Last eliminating our friends, the new Midnight Express, Bodacious Bart and Bombastic Bob. And here are the rest of the rogues gallery who are in that match. Two teams of Los Bariquas. Recon and Sniper from the Truth Commission. Bradshaw and Chains. Mark Henry and D'Lo of the Nation. Farouk and Karma of the Nation. The Quebecers, our friends from last month. The Rock and Roll Express. Yes, they've worked at WrestleMania now. The Headbangers. Too Much, a team of Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher. Eight Ball and Skull from the DOA. Steve Blackman and Flash Funk. Yes, you heard me correctly. And the Godwins. Right to the show proper. Uh, Takamichinoku defeated Aguila to retain the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. Triple H defeated Owen Hart, yes indeed, to retain the WWF European Championship. Mark Murrow and Sable defeated the artist formerly known as Goldust and Luna the Shawn in a mixed tag. Uh, the Rock defeated Ken Shamrock by eventual disqualification in their match for the IC title, meaning he keeps the belt. Uh, Catless Jack and Chainsaw Charlie defeated the New Age Outlaws in a dumpster match to become the WWF Tag Team Champions. The Undertaker defeated Kane. And in the main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated Shawn Michaels to win the WWF World Heavyweight Championship, in which Mike Tyson was the special outside enforcer. All right, what do you think of this show? It was wonderful. It was the best mania since WrestleMania 10, and it may have been top to bottom better than that show, even though it didn't quite have the high spots that, that 10 did. Um, you know, this is not a work rate show. This is a storyline show. I'm a storyline wrestling fan. I, you know, work rate is second to me. I think this is just a, a really good show that checked all the boxes that I needed it to check to enjoy it as a wrestling fan. Roy. I completely agree. I thought this was a tremendous show. One of the easiest watches we've had in the course of this entire, entire project. So no great matches, Probably no even matches that really got above very good, and even that might be being a bit charitable. We'll get there when we get there. But everything on this show felt important. This was a real changing of the guard show, as if after this, things were never going to be the same in a good way. And as we said in the news, every result top to bottom delivered what it set out to deliver. A, a reasonably hot crowd throughout. Everybody did still work hard. The WWF knew what they wanted this show to do. And they went out there and they did it. And I thought it was terrific. Yeah. I uh, feel like I watched a slightly different show. Um, I, I think you're both right in the sense that, you know, there's, there's nothing bad on this show by any stretch. Um, you know, and, and, and the stuff that edges in that direction never really outstays its welcome. Um, 
but this show may be greater than the sum of its parts, which I suppose is fine. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about a show and that's what people remember. That's okay. Um, but yes, th- this show is memorable for being well booked and not being bad in a lot of places. Um, but I, I don't know that this is a great show, but we'll see. Anyway, we're in Boston. Opening up the show, it's, yes, it's that aforementioned uh, 30-man, 15-tag battle royal for the number one contendership for the tag titles. Uh, God, this running list. LOD 2000 with Sonny versus the new Midnight Express versus Lost Bariquas versus Lost Bariquas versus the Truth Commission versus Bradshaw and Chains. What a fucking team that is. Versus Nation Domination 1, Nation Domination 2, the Quebecers, the Rock and Roll Express, the Headbangers, uh, Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher, the Disciples of Apocalypse, Steve Blackman and Flash Funk and the Godwins. Ah, good luck calling this. They they all start in the ring at the same time. I'll give potted highlights where necessary, but at least Savio Vega has been eliminated. <laughs> uh, basically, when one guy gets eliminated, his TV is out. So we've only got to get through 14 and not 29. So that's at least something. Uh, Barry Windham just wanders in randomly. Apparently, he's not in the match. Not like anyone notices. It only took a few minutes, but the ring empties quite quickly. Uh, into uh, Yeah, this really is Jobber Central. We're down to the Godwins, LOD, uh, one of the DOA, and the new Midnight Express because nothing says attitude like bringing back the Midnight Express. The DOA get eliminated. They eliminate Phineas anyway. Does anyone know what that means? Does anyone care? The Godwins, in theory, were down to the new Midnight Express and Legion of Doom. And after a beat back and forth, LOD 2000 eliminate both members of the Express to win the match and a shot at the tag titles next month. Uh, Rory, not the hottest start. <laughs> What's cool about being cool? Oh, yeah, this was a uh, well, yeah, this was a uh, pretty atrocious, wasn't it? Let's you know, get many arguments out of me on that one. I think the die was cast for this one after about two minutes when uh, D'Lo Brown was eliminated, but your boy Mark Henry stayed in the ring for four minutes afterwards because why the hell not? So even everybody else in there was shaky on the rules. My interest in battle royals has diminished quite dramatically over the last few years. Uh, mainly because there's only so many ways you can see somebody run towards the ropes and be backdropped out. And LOD 2000, it's the same old animal and the same old, old hawk wearing hockey helmets. Will we all be wearing those in two years' time? I'd like to say that we won't be. You know, the technology can <laughs> halt itself at that point. I would not be uh, found wanting on that. Uh, only thing I will say is that the crowd is just inexplicable. It has been ever since they came back last year. LOD are still over. It's, uh, I would not have opened with this match. If you absolutely have to have it, and that's another discussion, I would have put it much later in the show. The problem is if you open up with a battle royal, you, you're in danger. At least the only way is up, right? That's, that's, that's very true. That certainly happened. But if you open with a battle royal you're killing the crowd early because you're giving them too long to really pick somebody they can root for. All the good guys are in there, all the bad guys are in there. You can't really see what's going on. It only really comes down to the end where you can really pick a side or pick somebody specifically to get behind. And here that was LOD. Whereas if you put this a bit later in the show, say maybe after the Undertaker Kane match, you use the first five or six minutes to cool down the crowd, let them get their popcorn, get sat back down. Then you can bring them back up when the LOD are in there so they're hot for the main event. But yeah, again... It did what they wanted, which was to try and re-push the LOD for the 46,000 time. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, 
at least the new Midnight Express didn't win. Yes, that's where we are. Eric? I fully agree uh, with Rory's assessment that this match was tailor-made to be the calm-down match between The Undertaker versus Kane, which was a pretty hot match and a long match that took a lot of energy from the crowd and the main event, which basically comprised the last 30 to 45 minutes of the show. Um, and, you know, the crowd didn't suffer, uh, but I think uh, imagine how much more energy they would have had and how much more nuclear the pop for Austin that we'll talk about later on could have been if the crowd had had an opportunity to really, truly cool down. You guys are jaded, cynical old wrestling fans, man. This I thought the LOD entrance, I thought their gear looked pretty cool. Sonny is... is my goodness. Um, and, and yeah, I think. Yeah, but you could have put Sonny out there for 10 minutes. It would have been way more interesting than the other 30 guys involved, right? Well, and, and, you know, here's the, here's the thing to realize. I mean, these guys are all on the card. They're going to get a nice little paycheck. It's a nice gesture to get all these guys there. And, and it was only eight minutes long. It's not like it, we, we sat there and had to watch another fucking World War Three 45 minute deal. This is only eight minutes long. I mean, how bad could it be? The right team won. This push is just not going to work. I mean, it's the, the LOD is a pop factory at this point, and they can keep getting those pops, but then the bell does have to ring. And unfortunately, like Meltzer said, and you pointed out, Bob, they're called LOD 2000, not because they're hip and new, but because Hawk wrestles like he's 2,000 years old. <laughs> um, but still, uh, you know, all things considered, you get the crowd, you know, with a hot with a pop for the LOD, who they like. You put them with Sonny. You put them in some shiny new hockey gear. And, and, and give it a shot. This was the best way to get all these teams on the, on the card to get everybody a mania paycheck. And it was eight minutes long. So no skin off my back for this one. Eric, with the exception of Sonny, if you fired every single person in this match, would anything be lost? Uh, you know, I, I will pivot and say it would have been nice to be, to have Taka and Aguila given the extra time. Uh, I think that that's the only, that's the, the pivot that I'll take on that. But, I th- <laughs> uh, no, you need tag teams though, and they had a lot of young guys in this. Mark Henry, Brian Christopher, those kind of guys. I think if we really wanted to criticize this match on a booking level, we could have used this opportunity to push up some new guys and say, "Hey, these guys want a match at WrestleMania. Look at them." But you know, for what it is, the LOD build was coming. Every it wasn't a surprise that the that the surprise team was LOD. As soon as they came out, you knew they were going to win. So at that point, it's just like, let's see how they do it, and let's see where this goes, and, and sit back for the ride. You know, first match, eight minutes long, WrestleMania. Uh, it doesn't really bother me. But more to your point, Bob, no, I think other than Sonny, I think, you know, objectively, the card didn't need any of these guys. Were we saying question, just to wrap up a point? Um, <laughs> and, 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 and Savio. Well, Savio's got to stay. All the rest uh, I wouldn't really miss. Oh, and the Quebecers, of course, because they gave us some match of the year last month. <laughs> yes, let's move on. Uh, we cut. Uh, we got. Uh, I've got. We cut lives of the DX workout. We certainly did that. Uh, they cut the footage of a DX public workout, which wasn't really a public workout at all. It was just a wrestling ring outside. Apparently, fifteen thousand people there. Looked really fucking impressive. Um, they just dicked about with Austin for a bit and tied him up in the ropes and whatever. Um, I'm surprised they didn't focus on that more because that looked really good. Um, just the visuals of fuckload of people outside while DX don't do anything. But there we are. I suppose that's the same when they appear on Raw. Uh, next up, it's Takamichi Yoku versus Agia for the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship. A fast start, I suspect to be a fast match. Agia hits a huge moonsault from the top to the floor. That'd be great. 
Taka takes a run up in the ring, jumps to the top, and it's a body block to the floor. Aguia backdrops Taka to the floor, but Taka recovers to the top until Aguia arm drags him off. Aguia hits a running corkscrew plancher to the floor, knocks up another one to the stop standing there and waiting for him for Taka. Aguia comes off the top and Taka catches him with a drop kick. He follows that with a Michinoku driver, which, fair enough, the fans are now conditioned enough to know it's the end. And that wins the match with a pinfall. Roy, what do you think of this? Yeah, this was fine. It's an example of what the light heavyweight championship should be. You know, put Taka in there with somebody who's on his level style-wise. Like Aguila, I didn't actually know this until I was reading the sheets, and I, I, he barely even wrestled singles until this particular month. Now here he is, the wrestle freaking mania of all, all places. He's only 19, 20 years old. was a bit of a baptismus of fire, and he did look a bit nervous out there, but uh, his moves are massively impressive. And yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of psychology here. It was move, move, move to the finish. Again, if you're going to have this sort of division and it's going to be a different style, then go all in with it. I might not be the biggest fan of six, seven minute spot fest these days, but if that's what the division is, do it. Don't have them work heavyweight style. Keep Brian and Christopher a long, long way away from it. And I have no problem with this whatsoever. Crowd, it's probably the one time in the show where the crowd did flatten out. I'm... Maybe WrestleMania wasn't really the right place for this, but both guys worked hard. They did what the division should exist for, and I could have no real complaints. Roy, uh, Eric, even. This was a, you know, kind of a, it was sloppy at end points, and they had to get their shit in. They only had six minutes, but it was, you know, sloppy but harmless, mercifully short. Um, uh, Aguil is fine. Uh, he's a much better wrestler at 19 or 20 than I was anything at 19 or 20 fair shake to him there um but Rory you kind of mentioned it offhand I agree with you that the light heavyweight division needs to be this and not what they've been trying to make it be which is basically the heavyweight division but with smaller guys that was my criticism of the match last month um but there's no universe where this match isn't Taka versus Brian Christopher based on everything that they've built up no, uh, over the over the past six months. And 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 maybe you use this opportunity to, to put Taka over Brian Christopher clean, humiliate the king, and, and put all that nonsense behind us. Looks like Brian Christopher has already been moved on to different things. But, you know, th- they've, they've devoted so much effort and so much screen time and so much build to this Brian Christopher, Jerry Lawler, Taka Michinoku uh, feud – and then all signs were pointing to a mania payoff and it just didn't come. And and I don't know if it's going to come at this point because they seem to have completely backed off um, uh, the, the talk of Brian Christopher stuff. So this match was, was fine. Uh, Aguila's only got upside. The light heavyweight division only has upside. I agree that it has a place on this roster. My biggest criticism is this should have just been Taka over Brian Christopher clean and, and close the book on that storyline because it doesn't look like we're going to get it now. Uh, yeah, you, you said a few minutes ago you, you'd rather the opener have been given time to this. Like, uh, you know, maybe they'd have rushed a bit less if they'd have had more yeah. time. That was my thought um, exactly. Uh, I don't know that it would have been much better, though. Uh, like, the, the, these two didn't, you know, maybe it's just Aguirre's inexperience, but these two didn't seem to have a lot of chemistry. Um and it was it was like a spot fest, but even then it wasn't that impressive. 
like you know they did some interesting stuff but i've seen much better spot fests and i've seen much better matches um whether they'd have dramatically torn up what they'd have done had they'd have got 12 minutes i don't know um but yes i'm in complete agreement like this you know as, as much as brian christopher for me is like a you know, black hole. Like it, it would have made a lot more sense if they'd have done Tacker and Brian Christopher. You could have had Lauder on commentary off his long run. You would have had Christopher dicking about with the crowd. They'd have got a bit more into it. Um, it definitely would have been an improvement on this. I'd have still had my complaints, but as it was, this was like one of those kind of WCW cruiserweight matches they just threw out there with no notice. Um, but WCW cruiserweight matches generally a lot better. Um, but there we are. As I say, if I had one positive, um, it's that they've done quite a good job with Tacker to the point now where he hits his finisher and people are like, yeah, that's it. And it's like, that's good. Uh, that's something. But yeah, if they're going to have a light heavyweight division, they need more than this. That would be my thought. Anyway, we're backstage with a pre-taped sit-down interview with The Rock and Jennifer Flowers. The People's Intercontinental Champion is asked what he might do if he was the President of the United States. This is a bit weird. Rock drops in a hung jury joke, but he gets his usual spots in and looks very comfortable here. Uh, Rory, just quickly, I, you know, we talk about this being, you know, a, a quite a polished show. I guess they just wanted an opportunity to show how Rock could talk, and he got on screen with Jennifer Flowers. I, I guess there was that too. Fantastic. What, what else can you say about this man? It's just, it's just there. You, you, you can't teach it. You can't learn it. It really is a case of you either got it or you ain't. And here he is with a quote-unquote celebrity who is famous for, as we said in the news, being one of Bill Clinton's close personal friends. And he just carried it off. And yes, some of the puns are a bit obvious, you know, Hong, Jury, and Ruler, and her, 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 all very funny. Yeah, with him, he, he, he makes it work. He's just absolutely godlike. He's, he's, he gets better every time. He's, he is a superstar. Eric, any more? Wise to use a celebrity with probably limited camera experience like Jennifer Flowers in a pre-tape like this with somebody as good as The Rock who can hold the ship down. Uh, I think this would have been extremely awkward if they tried to do something like this live. Yes. And so, and so if, if, if they're going to use sleazy celebrities like Jennifer Flowers, uh, this is the way to do it. And so caveat being, I would have, you know, preferred they use somebody else or not used her her at all just because of you know how far it, towards the sleaze are we going to go but if you're going to use somebody like this and fair shakes to them for doing it do it this way do it the right way put it with the rock and let him do all the all the work next up it's triple h with china versus owen hart for the wwf european championship china will be handcuffed to sergeant slaughter at ringside a lot of stalling while we dick about waiting to handcuff china to slaughter Owen isn't even out here at this point eventually we get to it and owen comes out he takes down Hunter quickly. The crowd finally have someone to get into. China takes a shot at Owen on the floor, but Slaughter pulls her away. Hunter takes control with Owen in the corner. He spends the next few minutes working on his leg as the fans try and amuse themselves a little. Owen sets her a hurricane runner, but Hunter catches it and drops him with a powerbomb, which was very nice. Owen just about reaches with a crossbody off the top, a nice near fall, and the crowd are getting into it. He shakes for the sharpshooter. The crowd whip up. Helmsley kicks him away, but as Owen comes back off the turnbuckle, he headbutts Hunter's groin. Owen locks in the sharpshooter. China manages to drag his hand to the rope, so that's Hunter's hand to the rope before Sork can intervene. China launches some power into Slaughter's eyes. Owen goes in to work out what's what. 
China then low blows him, Hunter hits him with the pedigree and wins the match. Afterwards, China takes a few more slot shots at Slaughter. Eric? This was a really good match. These two guys, especially since Owen's dealing with what, what appears to be a, an ankle injury that's more severe than anybody really wants to admit. Um, this was a good match. and These guys have really good chemistry. And you can tell they've worked together before. And and that they're both, you know, pros in the ring. And Triple H has really improved since he was boring Hunter Hearst Helmsley in 95 and terrorizing before that. Um, and and even even in a vacuum, the finish was good and logical. And I understand why you want to build up Triple H and, and China. And, and especially with Sean losing later, you can kind of see why they'd want to put some momentum behind DX. My problem with this match isn't the match. It isn't the finish. It's It was the whole buildup to it. And, and the fact that you had Owen essentially be handed the European title, he didn't, he didn't get any wins over Triple H over this entire buildup. And then Owen does the dumb face thing and he's severely injured and Triple H just beats him and the ref stops the match and it makes Owen look like a, a jobber. So if Owen, if Owen had gotten any sort of heat on Triple H in this buildup to this match and this match happened exactly how it happened, I would be perfectly satisfied because this was a good match this was the first great like like not great but this was the first good match on this card but the build-up to it compounded by the finish that they went with really left a sour taste in my mouth being such a big owen fan rory yeah the match itself was very smartly worked i think owen's ankle injury played into it really well it really gave them something to latch on to i do think that holmesley worked it quite sensibly and as much as we say that Owen is a better heel than he is a face, and I do think that's true, I still think it is still excellent at working underneath. And they played it up perfectly for the 10 minutes. Looked as though he was going to win. China finds a way to break the clutches of Slaughter, and Helmsley gets a cheap victory and builds the heat on him. All well and good. But, and there is a big problem here, and it does go back to what Eric said about the build-up, Owen Hart's music hits, and... Nobody really cares. You could say it's because his new music is shite, which of course oh, it's is. so bad. It's not even remotely in the same league as. They need to bring that back and bring that back stats. So you could easily uh, pull that up as a reason. But he is his pops have been diminishing week after week after week ever since they blew the situation with Michaels at the end of '97. Yes, I liked the casket match at Rumble a lot, but. He really could have done Michaels Owen there. So it's all about the Rumble match. It doesn't really matter what the title match is. And it still would have been hot. Owen didn't even need to win it there. Just missed opportunities. And now he's just here dicking around with Helmsley, looking like a complete goof, losing the European title in 50 seconds. And now we're here having a good to very good technically based match but in front of a crowd who weren't really into him. And maybe the way the business is going aren't really into good to very good 11-minute technical-based matches. So what we actually saw was fine, was better than fine. It was well worked between two good professionals. But as we move into the spring in 1998, does this thing have a place anymore? And what's Owen's role in all of this? I really don't know. I just don't think it was that good. Um, you know, I'll accept the fact that Owen's working on some kind of quite significant ankle problem, which probably doesn't help. Um, I, I just don't ever know there was that much heat for this program at any point. Uh, I feel like they had the potential for something with Owen, kind of December time, and then, you know, they just, 
some of it's how they booked him. Some of it, as I said earlier, I think he's just, I mean, Hart kind of has his ceiling. Um, and then this match, I, you know, it was, it was fine. I mean, as I say, you kind of got to give him credit for the fact that it, it could have been a lot worse. Um, but I don't think it was particularly memorable in any way. Um, the China stuff with Slaughter was perhaps even more limited than I would have expected. Um, adding the finish, uh, yeah. Um, quite forgettable, I thought, long and short. Anyway. Up next, it's Mark Merrow and Sable versus Goldust and Luna Vachon, or the artist formerly known as Goldust, whatever he's called these days. Goldust comes out and he's got black and red face paint on. He's wearing a kind of long, dark wig. He kind of sort of looks a bit like Kane from the, the neck up, which looks a bit weird. Uh, Sable looks focused. We start with Goldust and Merrow, but Goldust tags in Luna. Merrow tags in Sable and the crowd whip up. We actually get a double team move from Merrow and Sable, and Sable ends up sidekicking Goldust. We get a crossbody mid ring, and Goldust kicks out too. Essentially, Merrow and Goldust are just there to bridge the gaps between the spots that Sable and Luna get involved in. A double hot tag, Sable takes down Luna, and we get by far the biggest pop of the night as Sable unloads on her. Sable knocks Goldust off of the apron, then sends Luna over the top. Merrow goes to the TKO, but Goldust slips out into a nice DDT. Mara hits a nice moonsault to a standing Goldust for a two. He follows that with a Hurricane Rana from the top for another nice near fall. Goldust ends up knocking Luna off of the apron after Mara and her get involved. Mara nearly takes it with a roll-up, then hits a TKO before Luna breaks up the pin. Sable tags in, goes to cover Goldust. Luna ends up splashing Goldust from the top after Sable moves. Sable then power bombs Luna. And then she kicks out, which was, took me by surprise. And I just got in my note and says, just shock and awe in Boston at that one. Sable then picks up Luna, hits a TKO for a three. Crowd are going bonkers. My last sign just says, what did we just watch? Rory, what did we just watch? God knows, but I loved it. Um, and so did the crowd. This is where we are now in these days. It's, it's just listen to the pop that Sable got. Now, should she be anywhere even remotely near a wrestling ring under any other circumstances? No. And I don't think she looked particularly adept when she was in there, even being led by you know, uh, an experienced worker in Luna. But did that matter? It mattered not a jot. Every time she tagged in, the place went balmy. And we were treated by seeing uh, give her giving to the very best of her ability a freaking powerbomb and a motherfucking TKO. And it was like she you just won the world title there and then it was ginormous pops and this is what i mean when i said at the beginning giving the people what they want at a show like wrestlemania the crowd loves sable okay the, the reasons for so are obvious but so what put her in a match you could be here relatively protected you could have mayor and gold dust doing their heavy lifting as they did say so luna's an experienced worker so you know, she can help sable out and we got a ginormous pop out of it with a real feel-good moment in the middle of the show. And I don't see how anybody can complain about that. I mean, I was after I'd read this, I after I watched this, I read the Observer and I thought, oh God, Davy Boy's gonna, you know, shit on this one. You know, this is not a this isn't Masao Kawada. And he, even he gave this match three stars. So even he just looked through and saw, yes, this was entertaining and what people wanted to see. And that's what the WWF asked, what WrestleMania is. Nobody is more sports-based than sports entertainment than I am. But you've got to ratchet up the entertainment, and this did. And people went nuts for it, so there's a lesson there. Bravo. Eric? 
if you want a picture of how far the wrestling business, in particular the, the WWF, has come in just about a year and a half, go back to SummerSlam 96 and take a look at Wildman Mark Marrow versus Gold Dust. And then fast forward to now and take a look at this thing. Go, go and, back to 94 and watch um, uh, whatever he's called, John B. Bad against yeah. Dustin Rose, if you just right. want to carry that pattern on. Exactly, exactly. I'm glad you made that point. I have nothing but positive things to say about this match. This was the best, maybe even better than the best version of this match they could have had. You know, first thing, Luna Vachon, bless her for making Sable look even half decent and for taking those bumps and for putting herself in what I imagine was legitimate harm's way, letting Sable get you up for a power bomb and a TKO where you're head and neck and you're upside down and, my goodness, Luna Vachon, I hope she got a hefty, a hefty amount of zeros behind her WrestleMania paycheck for this one. This, it, we criticize Goldust a lot, and rightfully so, because Well, no, no, well, I criticize Goldust a lot, you don't. Well, we, I like, <laughs> his comparatively, char- like, you know. I like his character work, but I will fully admit that his in-ring stuff since he's come into the Fed has by and large been disappointing. He's had a good match here and there with Vader, uh, a good match here and there, uh, sprinkled throughout. His matches with The Undertaker weren't that bad. But we look back at the last three WrestleManias, and WrestleMania 12 with the backlot brawl, one of the better matches, probably the most entertaining thing on that card. WrestleMania 13, he and Triple H had a good match with a really interesting finish, if you remember, with China ragdolling Marlena and really trying to get Goldust over as a sympathetic figure. And then this match... Goldust is Mr. WrestleMania, man. He keeps having these great, memorable WrestleMania matches that are weird and shouldn't work, and they do, especially with the backlot brawl in this one. This was this is the pinnacle of wrestling as entertainment and not wrestling as sport. Vince McMahon himself must have loved this match, and I did too. And and this was the first of a string of matches that'll run through the rest of the show that checked every box and were really executed tremendously. Good work. This was the best part of the show. Um, I don't know necessarily whether that says anything great, but this was, for me, the only, you know, when we talk about a waterline of what you're going to remember in 12, 18 months' time, you'll probably remember the finish of the main event. Um, but this was the, you know, and, and, well, the dumpster match as well is different enough, I suppose. Um but this was like one of those very rare moments on this show where you're like, fuck, did not see that coming. Um, and neither did the crowd. Um, because I, I figured that they were going to do the pin when Sable kind of jumped in the ring and just covered gold dust. I thought that might be it or that might be a setup to some kind of finish. And then Sable just pops up Luna for a powerbomb and they didn't finish with it. And you're like, what the f... Like... I don't think I've ever been more surprised by a kick-out in however long I've been doing this. Um, and then you're like, well, that was weird. What the fuck are they going to finish with now? And then she picks her up for a TKO. Um, that was great. Uh, the whole thing was, I, I, I'll give them all credit. Like, you know, there's, there, there was a minimal enough amount of gold dust where he couldn't negatively impact this match. <laughs> oh, my God. Listen um, to you. Which, can't which, is, can't which is which is the, the highest amount of praise I've probably ever given him. Um and, and yeah, basically, him and Mero there were just there to fill time. Um, and then, uh, Eric, I think you're right. Luna, more than uh, whatever paycheck she gets for the the, the, the beating and the, the risk she took in this one, 
and Sable looked great. I'd happily never see Sable in the wrestling ring again. <laughs> like to me, that like it's never going to get as good as this. There's no point in doing it again. Um, but I'll give them credit. Like there was no other possible combination of any of these four. There was probably no other possible combination match that involved any of them against anyone else that would have been remotely as interesting. They got this bit spot on. Um, you know, and I guess that counts as me praising gold dust. So there we are. Uh, anyway, uh, Carl Robert Parker's here. I, I, I have yeah. no idea. Um, he, he's, he's Tennessee Lee these days and what that's worth. Um, uh, brings up Bunkhouse Barker. I wish he did. He introduces Jennifer Flowers and Jeff Jarrett. She introduces The Rock, who's out with Dino Karma and Mark Henry. Next up, it's The Rock with the Nation of Domination versus Ken Sharrock for the WWF Intercontinental title. Sharrock storms out and we get underway. Doesn't look doesn't do a lot for the meaning of the WWF mid-card titles that JR manages to mix them up. We got the R way, Sharrock working Rocky by the guardrail. Rock does a body slam, then drops a running elbow. We get a ref bump. Rocky nails Sharrock with a chair. I'm not sure how the ref couldn't have heard that. Sharrock kicks out. Sharrock puts Rock in the ankle lock and Rock taps out. He then slams Mark Henry and then reapplies the hold. The match is over, but Sharon inexplicably, inexplicably starts going nuts and slamming referees. I'm guessing they're going to reverse the decision now, and that's exactly what they do. Sharon then goes nuts on the outside, slamming Rock on the stage. That's the actual stage where the DX band are going to play later on. Um, Eric, if if I had a, a, a letdown on this show... Uh, I, I felt this was a, a real big opportunity for these guys to build on the some of the momentum they've got, and I, I think they whiffed at this one. It's a really interesting decision because, uh, like we've talked about with the Owen Hart thing, it seemed like uh, the whole build for this was for Ken Shamrock to finally get his uh, his revenge on on Rocky, and we've seen it multiple times. He tapped him at Survivor Series. He tapped him at uh, at no way out. And, and so Ken has all these tag wins over rock and the Royal rumble was a, a swerve finish, a, a beautiful swerve finish, but it was a swerve finish. And so you build up and you say, okay, at WrestleMania, that's when Ken does it. And then he, he does, but then he doesn't get the belt and all the heat goes back onto the rock. Really weird decision. The match was only five minutes long and the post-match stuff was probably 15 and so it wasn't that well, long, was it? it it's well, it, you know, if the match was only five minutes long, they probably had a 15 or 20 minute, you know, block of time for this segment. And so if you figure in the, the pre-match post-match stuff, everything with Farouk and the nation, it, I think the brawling was significantly longer than the, uh, than the match itself. Be that as it may, I think they made the right decision. I think keeping the focus on rock, who's really blossomed here almost to the detriment of Ken Shamrock, because the whole feud was designed to get, Shamrock over as as a top top guy and Rock has really taken all that momentum and run with it. So I think what we're seeing here is a recognition that a pivot was needed and the Rock is the one who really needs the focus and the heat here and and Ken can can do that elsewhere. I, I ultimately agree with the decision. It's just too bad that that all the build again was for an obvious outcome and and it, it felt like a swerve. Um but I will say The Rock is, is fantastic, and I'm happy to see him still holding down the mid-card strongly, and maybe he can be built as a challenger for Austin now because they've had enough matches together. So, Eric, yeah, okay. yeah, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say disappointing, but I, I kind of get it. Eric, bell to bell, was this an even average match? It wasn't long enough to be an average match. I mean, 
you know, you give two guys like Ken and Rock, both of who have pretty established move sets and routines and momentum, how they build momentum in a match. And, you know, five minutes is, is just perfectly long enough for a, for a job match. And it's not long enough at all for a match between two stars like this to, to get anything going. It would have been really interesting if they had just had Ken tap Rock clean in five minutes and that's the end of it. And, and the problem with that is, can you ki- still keep Rock strong as a chicken shit heel if you beat him and clean in five minutes? I think that was the problem they ran into. It's like, we need to keep Ken looking like a monster, but we can't beat the Rock and they probably can't have a 15 or 20 minute match based on Ken's limitations. So almost you booked yourself into a corner here. Um, by by making everybody firmly believe and I think rightly believe what the payoff was going to be here at Mania. So in a sense, uh, the match wasn't good, but it wasn't given any opportunity to be good. I don't know that they could have topped what they've already done, though. So maybe this was a way of being able to not repeat what they did at Royal Rumble when they had a longer match, when they've had matches at Survivor Series. So no, not a good match, not really a particularly memorable match, but the you know uh, pre and post bell, that was that was pretty good stuff. Roy? Yeah, two things here. First, to jump on uh, Eric's point from earlier, read Jennifer Flowers. It definitely did make sense that she had a pre-tape earlier because when she was here out live, it was not good. A, she stumbled over her words, and B, even worse, she told Jeff Jarrett that he was great. You know, there's, there's no coming back from that. But at least we got the colonel out there in the ring, which made me happy if nobody else. Why is he there? I don't know, but hey, I'll definitely take it. He's great. This match, yeah, not much to really talk about. And I thought it quite interesting that here we are moving forward into a brand new era with the WWF. And here they are recycling finishes from where we where we began in SummerSlam 1993, right down to the heel being stretched out after a match is uh, after a match result is overturned. And he's raising, you know, he's, he's raising his fist in victory as he's stretched it away. I thought that was interesting. Very little, to, very little to say about the match. It was basically Shamrock beating the hell out of the rock and putting the ankle lock on him. And I I'm with you, Eric. I do get it, but they've got to be a bit careful with Shamrock. If he just becomes the guy who nearly wins the belt, now people are going to start turning off. He won't be able to keep his heat by beating up everybody after the match all the time. It worked at SummerSlam. It worked here. You can't always go to that particular well. So they're going to have to pull this trigger sooner or later. Next month, maybe. The Rock losing the Intercontinental belt is not going to hurt him one iota. He could talk his way out of it the next day, no problem. And now they've got this storyline going forward where he is the ruler of the uh, of the nation. So he looks like he's going to be feuding with Farouk anyway. Does that really need the IC belt? Mm, probably not. But yeah, I get what they're going for. No, Shamrock has got the persona where he can carry that off where you believe him snapping at the end of the match. That's fine. And again, the crowd enjoyed it but they've got to be a little bit careful that they don't luger him completely. Yeah, I didn't really get this. Um, like, Eric, I, I think you made, well, you made both very points in terms of, you know, the, 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 the they had to kind of crowbar the booking in this match around where they wanted to take both guys. I, mean, I guess that's always true in wrestling, but I think sometimes it's more true than others. Um, but I feel like they, they did this finish like, two or three months ago whenever it was and it made sense then because they needed to crowbar a finish around where they wanted to take both guys and I thought that was in anticipation of a match at Wrestlemania where they'd finish the job off 
And yet they've kind of just done the same thing again, and I don't really understand why. Um, as in, to me, I'd have just had Rock beat him. And I know that's that's generally my attitude with these things, and I, I know I, you know, a, a Bob version of a, a booked wrestling promotion would involve heels winning cleanly probably a lot more often than your average person listening to this show would book it, or indeed your average promoter would. Um but to me, like I, I'd rather just try to get Rock over with a clean victory and then rely on him to heal his way back into position than whatever they did here. Um, Shamrock just looks like a complete idiot. Um, you know, it's like the... I think it might be different, say, if Steve Austin wasn't already doing this whole gimmick of wiping out referees as well. Um, but it's just so obvious what's going on, particularly as it feels like it's the third or fourth time it's happened now. Maybe it is only twice. Um, but Shamrock wins a match and then dicks about a bit afterwards and now all of a sudden he's lost. Just looks like a bit of a tool, particularly when it's happened a couple of times. Um, and yeah, I, uh, Roy, like, I, I feel like this match should have been a lot longer and should have been a lot better. And to, to me, if you, if your direction and your goal is to try and keep both guys strong or whatever way, shape and form that looks like, you do it by letting these guys go 15 and 20 minutes, not by coming up with a finish that we've already seen. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think Shamrock at least is capable of going 15, 20 minutes. He proved in his match against Michaels, which I said at the time was sort of like a, a training post-match for him at DX. I think he quitted himself very well there. As much as I love The Rock in pretty much every facet of professional wrestling, I'm still not absolutely sure he's got everything down pat in the ring yet. Maybe that's what their fear is. But um, Sonic, they should have just thrown them out there and let them go. Again, I repeat, I understand what they were going for here, and I think it was largely successful. But I just think they should have just you know, said, to hell with it, put the belt on Shamrock and move on. Eric, any more? Just... You know, if we're going to take one thing away from this match, and there's a lot of problems with it, The Rock is slowly becoming a member of that club of guys who can sell that is exclusive to Ricky Morton, Mr. Perfect, Shawn Michaels. I mean, hell, this guy, he's he's a top-notch seller when he's in distress. And, and if you take anything away from this match, just look at how much The Rock has progressed as a heel, and, and this guy's going to be a megastar. Up next, it's Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. Who, uh, he was largely just known as Terry Funk in this match. So I'll probably call him that as well. Versus the New Age Outlaws, Red Dog and Billy Gunn for the WWF Tag Team titles in a dumpster match. Cactus leads Road Dog up against the dumpster and hits him with a running knee. Funk gets back, drops into it. Jack, to no one's surprise, is taking some hard bumps into the dumpster. Funk emerges from the dumpster and whacks Gunn with a sheet of sorts. We have three guys in it, but they all climb out. Funk hits a neck breaker as the action, briefly at least, returns to the ring. Jack brings the ladder into the match. They place it in the half of the ring nearest the dumpster. Cactus Giant climbs it. So does Billy Gunn. Funk then shelves them both and they fall into the dumpster in a really nice spot. The outlaws then powerbomb Funk into it. Jack makes a beeline for the entrance and Gunn follows him. We get a camera backstage. Jack gets submerged in some shelving units while being thrown through what I can only describe as a series of human-sized Gatorade bottles. Jack then DDT's gone onto a pallet. 
Funk emerges, jumps into a forklift, apparently knows how to drive on, lifts both gun and road dog up. He then lifts them up, drives them towards the dumpster. There's one backstage as well. And then they just both kind of slowly and as realistically as they can try to kind of roll into it. Jack then shuts the lid. Funk then drives the forklift kind of lifter above it and then jams it over the top of the lid, holding it closed. And Funk and Jack win the tag team titles. Eric. Glorious. This match was so entertaining. And again, it's becoming a theme of this show, especially it's almost in tandem with the Marrow Sable Goldust Luna match. You book a match that maximizes the strengths of the competitor, the, the relative strengths of the competitors in the match. And we know that Mick Foley is a good wrestler and can have good wrestling matches. We know that Terry Funk at least used to be able to have good <coughs> wrestling matches. And he's probably a little bit. You know, we saw him struggle with Chris Candido and ECW to really keep up with a, with a young, good wrestler. But we know Terry Funk can have good matches still. Uh, but Billy Gunn, not a great, not a great wrestler. And, and, and Road Dog, certainly not a great wrestler. And so you have these four guys with kind of awkward clashing styles, but you put them in this, no pun intended, truly like garbage match, like you would see in ECW almost, but it's better because the, the guys are better. The spots are safer to the extent that these spots can be safe. Um, the match wasn't too long. It only went 10 minutes, almost right on the nose. And, and it was just a, it was just a, a, a race, essentially. I mean, th- nothing slowed down in this match. And I feel like I could watch this match two or three times and still find new little nuances, new spots, new setups. That, that was good. I mean, there was just so much packed into this relatively short match. Super entertaining. And, and, and the right team won. Uh, again, it's not this match that, that if there's a problem, it's not this match that was a problem. It was the follow-up the next night on Raw. Be that as it may, this match in a vacuum at this spot in the card with the build, which was also very good. Uh, this was a, just a super entertaining match. Nothing to complain about. Roy. Crazy fun with the emphasis on crazy and any remaining emphasis on fun as well. Loved it, loved it, loved it. <clears throat> Ten minutes, which flew by. I just thought, sod it, we're just going to do everything we can, as many spots with the dumpster as we can think of, and then we're going to go to the back and we're going to have Terry Funk drive a forklift truck after being powerbombed into the first dumpster with a huge welt on his back. He is then going to pick up the heels, he's going to drop them into another dumpster, which is conveniently placed in the back next to the forklift truck, just in case Terry Funk decides to drive it and can drive a forklift truck, he's going to, going to put them in there and the referee's going to count that as a win. If that is what we need for the greatest wrestler in history and a huge favourite of mine in Vic Foley as well to win tag team title belts at WrestleMania, then uh, where do I sign? Just fucking lunatic insane. And I loved every last morsel of it. Yeah, you could probably pick a few holes in this. You could probably say that, you know, there wasn't much selling going on. You could probably say some things didn't really make sense, particularly at the end. It doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, this was very fun to watch. Um, the Outlaws are, you know, I, again, I talk about a show being better than the sum of its parts. Fuck me, the Outlaws are better than the sum of their parts. Um, and it, it does just help that Jack and Funk are really good. Um, you know, whether they'll be able to walk in five years time is a very, very different question. Um, but in the, in the nuance of what we're, we're reviewing here, this was very well done. As I say, you're going to be picky. They kind of did a lot of big spots and didn't really sell them, but they, you know, the two guys fell into the dumpster and then they were out like 30 seconds later. 
Um, a lot of fun, though. Very, very good match. Very well done. Right team won. Finish was a bit convoluted, but it really gives a shit. Um, yeah, two big thumbs up from me. Out comes Pete Rose. Of course he does. Last time I was here, we kicked your ass. Just two <laughs> decades ago, wherever it was. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds player making yourself well, feel welcome in Boston. He's doing the intros for Kane with Paul Barrett versus The Undertaker. Kane comes out and tombstones Pete Rose. Undertaker begins the entrance. The Druids comes out carrying flaming torches. They create a torch tunnel and out walks Undertaker. We start with the exchange of punches. Kane isn't giving much away, even though he's on the back foot. He runs over Undertaker with a clothesline, but Taker sits straight back up. He shakes for a tombstone, then badly puts Taker in a tree of woe. He drapes Taker over the top and then comes off with the top with a forearm. He charges at Kane, or Taker charges at Kane rather. Kane takes him on his shoulders, deadlifts him, then drops into the mat. Barrow distracts the ref and Kane drops the ring steps across Taker's back, because apparently if the ref can't then he can't hear it either Barrett lays in some horrid looking kicks to the down taker Kane takes taker down with a chin lock taker eventually drops uh, drops on the ropes uh, Kane on the ropes I've got can in my notes that's better uh, Kane eventually uh, taker I'll start there again taker eventually drops Kane on the ropes then kicks him off the apron still Kane lands on his feet taker takes a run up vaults over the ropes and goes flying through the Spanish announce table Kane goes to the top Taker is up bloody quickly. Kane hits a clothesline on Taker mid-ring. Taker kicks out and almost nobody's surprised. Taker goes for a tombstone. Kane does the Sid Vicious reversal and does a tombstone of his own and Taker kicks out. The reaction of the referee is great there. He gets scared shitless by Kane. Taker hits a tombstone which didn't really look safe. Kane manages to kick out. Now that was a surprise. Taker hits a second tombstone. That looked marginally better. Kane kicks out again. Taker hits a third tombstone. Kane kicks out at about 3.1. Undertaker's won the match. Barrett jumps in the ring with a chair and starts laying in some more terrible kicks on Taker. Kane hits Taker with the chair. He then tombstones Taker onto the chair to end the segment. Rory. Right, okay. Under any normal circumstance, I would be all over this match like a rash. Because from a technical perspective, it was bobbins, quite frankly. It was not good. It was not good at all. 17 minutes is far too long to consider these two can even contemplate going against each other. Now, either one of these guys at this point of their careers, they need to be in there with a A-grade, top-list echelon worker to get to 17 minutes. And so much of this was boring. It was plodding. And as you say, Bob, a lot of the work just wasn't even safe. But I was there for every last minute of it from the first to the last. Because this is this is storytelling at its best. I mean, when did this begin? Back at In Your House Revenge of the Taker last April, an otherwise extremely forgettable pay-per-view. And that's where this story has come from, when Undertaker set Paul Bearer on fire. And all we've come through, everything, the, the dark secret, Undertaker holding on to the WWF belt, being Paul Bearer's slave, then it just going quiet for a couple of months and then Kane tearing off the door at Bad Blood and Undertaker doing everything in his power to not fight him. And it looks like they've got back together and then Kane sets him on fire in a casket and then he reappears a few weeks before Mania and we get to the match. Yes, we can quibble about some of the hocus pocus, abracadabra stuff we saw earlier in this month and I think justifiably, but that all led up to this, the final chapter. And I know it's going to continue, but... but First section of the story, final chapter, this match. And it was engrossing. It really did feel like 
two brothers who do not want to... Well, one who just wants to kill the guy and one who does not want to face him under any circumstances. And we got to see Undertaker <laughs> selling in this match. I mean, when was the last time that really happened? He, he, he showed some real vulnerability here. And I'll be honest, when Kane hit the first tombstone, I wasn't absolutely convinced Undertaker was going to kick out of that. I thought, hang on a minute, are they are they really doing this? As soon as Undertaker kicked out, then yes, I knew the result of the match. And I didn't like the choke slam pickup after that. That that's that belonged in a different match. But otherwise, by the by, Undertaker takes a man-sized bump into the tables, which Tito Santana carries on commentating when he's been knocked down, ever the pro. And then we get the big three tombstones at the end. The thing I really liked about this is that it wasn't just tombstone kick out, tombstone kick out, tombstone win. It was tombstone kick out. That's never happened before. So Undertaker just goes to the first thing he can think of, which is a leg drop. Then he hits another tombstone. And that's not good enough. Then he's thinking, oh shit, what do I do here? Ah, fuck it. Uh, Flying clothesline. Then he goes back to another tombstone. And then he just gets the victory. So I thought this was in-ring storytelling at its very, very best to cap a year-long build in a match which will not win many awards. It certainly won't from me. It's not even a case of picking the holes. It was a bad wrestling match. But it was as good as you're going to get any bad wrestling match to be. Eric? I adopt everything Rory just said about this match. I think that's an excellent summary of where this has been and what it's all been building to. And the match was long and slow. But there were some really good spots in it. I mean, uh, The Undertaker just flying through the air. I mean, that guy, that's a guy who's nearly seven feet tall, over 300 pounds, just flying through the air. And he could have, he could have broken his neck. And it just looked awesome. And the, the entrances were cool. I mean, the spectacle, the WWF spectacle was really on point here. Kane's entrance was great. The Undertaker's entrance was somehow better. All the stuff with Pete Rose was awesome, despite the fact that it maybe turned Kane's face right before he was supposed to be the most evil heel on the roster, but whatever, it was still hilarious because Pete Rose is such a tool. But, and this is the only but that I have for this entire show, really, I try really hard not to put on my booking hat very often on the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, but here we go. I would have had Kane win this match, and I almost would have had Kane win this match convincingly. They can still have a 10 or 15 minute long match, but at the end, I want Kane to get the clean one, two, three over the Undertaker because holy shit, no one's ever dominated the Undertaker like that. Even the Hulkster had to be- beat the Undertaker with a roll up after shenanigans at Tuesday in Texas. The Undertaker has never just been beaten clean by a superior opponent that I can really remember. I don't think it's ever happened. He's lost here and there, but it's always been with outside interference, shenanigans, yeah, but scenarios. If Kane had just come out and they had a, the same match they had, but Kane was the one that beat the Undertaker clean in the middle, that would have set Kane up as this like huge monster. It would have injected some life into the storyline, which if it's not going to stop here, it needs something different to move it forward because now where do they go? The Undertaker has already beaten Kane. He's already uh, conquered this obstacle. They got their heat back at the end, I guess, but Kane already lost. I just really would have liked to see Kane win here in a relatively convincing fashion and give me some reason 
to believe that the Undertaker needs to keep this whole thing going and why Kane is not just now another foe that the Undertaker has has toppled. So everything Rory said is true. This has been my be- my favorite storyline in wrestling for a year and a half. The match was fine. Some of the spots were amazing. Paul Bear, again, just give him all the managerial, uh, manager awards that we can dish out on this show. But I would have had Kane win, and I would have had him do it convincingly. Um, uh, the, the match was a bit dull, um, and I was a bit puzzled with the, the way they put the finish together. Um, uh, I agree with Eric. I, I don't know that I would have had Undertaker win the match. Um, I get what they were trying with the whole three tombstones thing, but it, you know, I, I would have, you know, I, I would have sooner done. Take a tombstones cane, cane kicks out, and then take a tombstones cane twice more, and then cane doesn't kick out. I would have sooner done that than had a second failed attempt as well, because that just looked a bit weird that we're entering two cold Scorpio ECW territory with that at that point. Um, the storyline's been good. I, I, again, I, I kind of. I'll compare this to the Shamrock Rock match earlier. I almost kind of feel like they copped out on the finish because they kind of have bigger plans. I don't know if that's ideal for WrestleMania. Um, again, maybe I would have just had the heel win clean. Um, maybe that would have been a better way of doing it. But again, we're entering a, a very Bob-booked, Bob-centric universe here if we're starting to go down that direction. Um, I think this... I don't think this made much sense either as their first match. Um, yeah, I'm more puzzled than impressed, Eric, I guess is what I'm getting at. No, I, I, and I, everything you say, I think I, I can agree with. Uh, I, I guess it all just comes down to that the WWF has and apparently always will be a face territory. And at the end of the day, especially at these big shows at WrestleMania, at SummerSlam, the face goes over in these big matches and, you know, logic and, and future storytelling and, and, and all of that be damned because we got to send the crowd home happy. And the problem is they, they were going to do that anyway with the way the obvious finish of the main event. And I well, and the would... fact that other than triple H, I think every single baby face won. Ex- exactly. And so, yeah, I, I can't, I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think the match the match was fine. It was boring at times. It was too long. This is another match where they could have shaved five minutes off and given it and, and spread it around the card a little bit. And I think that would have been, you know, if we're going to really nitpick here, that that could have helped this match and it could have helped the timing and the pace. But all things considered, um, if they're going to keep this going, maybe they'll maybe they'll write the ship. Maybe Kane will, will get his you know will get get some type of of heat or revenge back on the Undertaker or, or whatever. But yeah, I. I just I'm a little bit puzzled as to where they go since it's obvious they're going to keep this going now that the Undertaker has just gotten that clean win. That's the blow off. That's not the the beginning of a of a series of matches. So yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you both on this one, frankly. Rory chiming on any of that? Yeah, two points. One, this is obviously a very very different feud. But when we got Mankind Undertaker at King of the Ring '96, who won that match? Right. And it must be said fairly cleanly as well it was a botched interference from bearer but uh you know he pinned the undertaker one two three for the victory 
and they went on to do pretty good things after that. So it's not as if the feud was killed right out of the gate by having their heel win. So that's one point there. And a second one, now that Undertaker has won, as well as I think it was done, it now looks based on uh, what they were talking about on Raw the day after this, that we're going to have a match with a ring surrounded by fire. And again, that's straying into cheesy David Copperfield territory for me, where they're trying to squeeze more drops out of this feud, where if Kane had won, you've just got an easy ready-made rematch, not even at the next pay-per-view. You could say it's a SummerSlam, even next Mania, who knows? Yeah, I can see why they gave Undertaker the victory here. But now they sit down after the show and think, yeah, we could have done this the other way, and maybe we should have done. Yeah, I think we've said our piece on that. Uh, on to the main event. It's Steve Austin versus Shawn Michaels with Triple H and China for the WWF title with Mike Tyson as the special guest enforcer. Apparently, Earl Hebner was going to be the referee in this match, and then he got rushed to hospital the day before with what was a brain aneurysm, I think. Uh, apparently, he's doing all right, but... But there we are. Um, Austin gets a huge pop coming out. He and, Toss, he and Tyson get into it. DX have got a band to play them on. Michaels gets the first shot in and looks happy with himself. They drop to the floor. Michaels outruns him but gets uh, on return to the ring, gets absolutely flattened by Austin. Michaels charges at Austin. Austin sends him flying over the top with a backdrop and Michaels lands on Austin. The ref ejects Triple H and China from ringside, which I thought was a bit weird because you figured Tyson's job would have been keeping those two in line during the match, but there we are. Uh, noteworthy for this match was that Tyson didn't really do a lot. Uh, Austin starts attacking Hunter by the stage area. Michaels floors Austin and takes a symbol and knocks him down again. The dumpster is still in play, so Austin gets thrown into the side of that too. Austin shakes for a, t- a stunner. Michaels hightails it, but Austin knocks him off the apron and onto the announcer's table. Tyson, for what it's worth, has done so far absolutely nothing. Austin charged at Michaels by the timekeeper's area. Michaels backdrops him in the crowd, then hits him with a bell. Michaels flips off the crowd, so Austin gets up, takes him down on lows while throwing him outside. Tyson then does uh, just... just Tyson then just dumps Austin back into the ring after he's recovering on the outside. Michaels tackles Austin's knee to the, and then locks in the figure four. Austin catapults Michaels into the top turnbuckle and roll up for a near fall. Michaels goes for a sleeper. Austin fades, then drives Michaels into the corner. Then there's a the ref bump. The crowd are a bit flat, They're just waiting at this point. Both men go down. Michaels gets up first and heads to the top. He drops the elbow from the top, then shakes for a super kick. Austin catches the super kick, spin Michaels around, and hits him with a stunner. Tyson dives into the ring, does a really fast count. Who really cares at this point? And Austin is the new champion. JR says the Austin era has begun. Austin throws Tyson an Austin 316 shirt. Tyson holds it up for the cameras. Michaels comes to and wants to know what's going on. He eventually goes for a punch and then Tyson just flattens him with a right. And that will do that. Austin and Tyson leave the ring together as confetti falls. Eric, take us through that. Holy shit. Is wrestling back or what? That crowd, that, I don't want to say it was the biggest pop I've ever heard in a wrestling uh, event because I can't say that to be certain, but that pop for Austin at the beginning of this match was the biggest pop that I can remember in a really long time. And this match was challenged because Austin's obviously working with limitations. Michaels is working with what appear to be significant limitations with his low back. I mean, eight to ten minutes into this this match, Michaels was just in obvious agony, not selling. Like my back legitimately hurts. I legitimately am having a hard time bending over climbing the ropes, God forbid, taking bumps. 
And these two had, again, the running theme for this night, the best match they could have had under the circumstances. I think that this was, a, it was laid out well. It was, there were obvious segments of the match if we want to get super technical about it. The crowd was allowed to pop and simmer and pop and simmer, and there were some relative high spots and moments, and the finish was beautiful, and uh, it made sense. And then the whole thing with Tyson, I, I just I – could, I could wax poetic about this match. I just think based on everything, all the context to it, Michael's injuries, personal problems, Austin, Tyson's involvement, the magnitude of this match, the fact that it needed to come off – nearly perfectly in order to keep this momentum that they've got with Austin. Nothing. I'm not going to pick this match apart. And the last thing I'll say is if, if you can watch this match and still not think Shawn Michaels is the best professional wrestler on earth right now, the fact that he was able to put this match together and lead it with the injury that he's dealing with, my goodness, everything we say about that guy in terms of his personality and his, you know, how he corrupts the locker room. It's all fair, but bell to bell, he's the best in the world. And I'm almost nostalgic already thinking about a life without Shawn Michaels because it does look like he's going to be gone for a while. And I just, you know, we're going to get into probably more details and more conversations about this match and maybe we'll pick it apart, but I'm, I'm not going to do that right now. This was just a perfect main event for this show. Rory. Yes, uh, a match like this, this main event, it's at times like this where being a quote-unquote smart fan, I think, actually helps your enjoyment for two reasons. One, we all knew that Austin was winning. We'll get to that. Two, if you didn't know the status of both of these guys, that Austin's neck is held together by tape, and Michaels can barely walk, you would think it would be a bit on the disappointing side. And it was, as a match from a technical perspective, it was very bitty, quite stop and start. There weren't many real, any sequences going on. I could tell on at least two or three occasions there were spots thrown in there simply to try to buy the guys a bit of recovery time. Uh, The Helmsley China stuff, Tyson lurking around by the bell, that sort of thing. But that didn't really hurt my enjoyment of it too a great deal. I still think that these two guys, who knows, we'll probably never see it now. These two guys have a great four and a half star plus match in them. I don't think their King of the Ring match was it, by the way, but that's another story. But this was all about getting the belt onto one of the hottest guys in any form of entertainment, sport, you name it, anywhere. And they went out there and they did it. And Michaels is... uh, It's so hard to praise the guy. Because even when he deserves it like he does here, I'm just like at the back of my head, yeah, but look what he's done for the last three years. The guy's such a fucking arsehole. And he goes out there when he's clearly in intense pain. Even things like just walking around the ring, he's clearly racked from the bottom of his neck down to his waist. And yet he is still gutting out, giving the absolute best performance he can. But you've got to say, yes, this man is... Ugh. He's brilliant. He knows he's brilliant. He loves telling people he knows he's brilliant, but he's got every right to. Now, let, let, let's just, you know, look at this, what he's got up here, points ahead, and try and work on that, but uh, never mind. Yeah, crowd, they flattened out a couple of times, but I don't think that's a problem, Bob. They got what they wanted. They got the glass smashing. 
And 20 minutes later, they got Austin holding the belt high. After Tyson comes in, I'll talk about this in a second. Tyson comes in, does his Nick Patrick count. And there we go. We talk about sending the crowd home happy. My God, they were absolutely ecstatic at this one, and rightly so. This is what we mean by we say the WWF doing good business. Very simple yeah. thing to do. Put the title on, on Austin. Bang. Done it. Yeah, I, I think if you if you want to <coughs> start looking at the small print in this match, it, it, it might start coming apart a bit, but the it, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, Austin's not the wrestler he was four years ago. Michaels is going to be on the shelf for God knows how long with a, a back injury he was clearly suffering from. Uh, the reaction at times was not great. Um, you know, the it lacked drama at points in the middle, dare I say it. Um, but ultimately, one, Austin got a fucking gigantic pop at the start. Ultimately, everyone was waiting for the finish. Ultimately, the finish was really satisfying. And ultimately, we finished the show with Austin, who's now the number one guy in the WWF, on top. Broad points done. Good. Box text. Crowd were very happy. They were very, very hot for it. Really cannot argue with it. It was a very, very good main event. Um, again, if you want to start pulling it apart, you can start looking at the match quality. And in, in some respects, it was a miracle they got through it as well they did, given how... Well, badly, Michaels was working at one point. Um, Tyson's involvement was a bit weird in the, again, broad strokes, he, he, exactly what they needed to do, they got done. Uh, Tyson got involved at the end, he was a significant part of the pin, finish, which justified all the build up. The cameraman got their shots, they got the shot of him holding up the shirt, they got the shot of him walking off with Austin. Austin gets the run from Tyson, everyone's happy. Um, bit weird though, Tyson wasn't really involved in the match, was almost a non-factor. And as I kind of said, like it, you know, one, it would have made a lot more sense had he been the referee, even though that would have been a bit clunky. Um, two, it, it, you know, isn't Tyson there? You know, I, I kind of was a bit surprised. I know they wanted to say Tyson knocking out Michaels for the end, but I'm kind of surprised he didn't get into it with Hunter. I'm kind of surprised he didn't get into it with China at some point as well. I feel like they, they perhaps lost some stuff there as well. Um, so, yeah, Rory, I, I, I guess... When we talk about stuff, we're going to remember that they ticked enough boxes to the point where a lot of my qualms that really do not matter. Um, but in some respects, if you want to overanalyze it, it does look a bit weird. It does. Tyson, it's, it was strange, really, because Tyson, when he's been on screen ever since January, really, one thing you can't say, he's not been enthusiastic. He has thrown himself into it. You can tell that the guy really is a wrestling fan. And yet here, and I don't really think this was character stuff, he just seemed rather subdued until the finish he, he didn't really do anything he kind of chided Michaels for using the bell and then he, that bit where he throws Austin back in the ring and that was pretty much it now he didn't really get involved at all he, I, you know, was, <laughs> I thought as he, as he misses cues here or, or whatever but as we now know it was just building up to the finish which with him turning face I guess it doesn't really fit and it was never really explained the next day, but they got their sports center moments out of it and it completes Tyson's journey from Indiana youth center to world boxing champion to the inside of a prison cell to now being the mainstream celebrity who they hope. And I think they might well get their wish will now fire WWF in general and Steve Austin in particular into the stratosphere. So, Everybody's got what they wanted out of this. 
Eric, your thoughts on Tyson's involvement specifically? Yeah, and I do agree with, with what you guys are saying. And it, it probably would have been nice. I'm not sure how they would have done it. Um, a referee spot. Tyson was, Tyson was great on television. I think he was, he was obviously capable of more than they gave him in this match. Although what he ended up doing was fantastic. And it does provide that real snapshot moment that easy to remember, easy to, you know, cut into a, a highlight or a clip moment. Um, the point of Tyson wasn't for Tyson to be involved with the show, the point of Tyson was for the WWF to say, Hey, look, we've got Mike Tyson on WrestleMania by the show to see what he does. And so I think from looking at this from a different way, you think, okay, we've got Tyson. He's going to be on the show. We're going to bump the buy rate for people just out of that curiosity. But then on the other hand, we also have these two guys who are both working with, with various degree of maladies. And we have this match, which is probably the most important match in the Fed since Hogan Andre, um, maybe Hogan Warrior, but it's certainly up there in terms of this match needed to go perfectly in order for things to continue as as they are for the momentum to continue. If this match had bombed, I don't know if the WWF has a real competitive future against WCW. So you think about it like that, and you think, well, we've got two guys working injured. We've already got variables. We've already got a referee who's who's out. So now we're putting in a backup referee into this most critical match. So we don't even have Earl out there to steer the ship. You know, give Tyson less to do and there's less variables to go wrong. Give him that 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 easy, you know, clippable moment and let Austin and Michaels really work through this match as a match with their injuries and not have to worry about building in spots for referee Tyson throughout the match. Um, so I, I just wonder if we had two healthy guys and if we had a little bit different scenario with everybody but Tyson working in this match, if Tyson's involvement would have been greater. Um, we'll never know. I think what they did was great. Um, and I think uh, limiting Tyson's involvement and and and, and, and limiting the, anything that could possibly go wrong, which you see sometimes with celebrity involvement, was was a very conservative choice. So, yeah, we can nitpick at that. But I think – if you factor in everything surrounding this match and how important it is, limiting Tyson's involvement but still being able to advertise him as being on the show was a safe move. Eric, your overall thoughts on this show and a score rating out of 10? This is one of those shows, Bob, where you have to kind of look at the forest sometimes and not necessarily the trees. I mean, we've pointed out that the opening hour of the show with the Battle Royal, Taka, Aguila, and and some some complaints with Owen Helmsley uh, – that probably wasn't the best first hour of a WrestleMania that you'll ever see, but every match on the show, uh, maybe with the exception of Taka Aguila, uh, was booked in such a way that it, I think maximized or nearly maximized the strengths of the workers involved. It progressed storylines that needed to be progressed in, in extremely effective ways. Uh, it ended other storylines that needed to end. Um, and I just think that as a wrestling fan, if you sit down and you think, I want to be entertained for three hours, and you sit down and watch the show, it, it accomplishes that. And and the fact that the main event carried off so well and came off as well as it did. Uh, Bob, I'm going to give the show an 8 out of 10. Roy. Dave Meltzer himself has said in the past that professional wrestling is something that you have to watch in the moment. You need to watch it live from start to finish to really appreciate everything. Or if you go back and reanalyze things, you spot mistakes that you're really not supposed to spot. And I think that is perfectly appropriate here. We've gone through these matches. We found things wrong. 
things that we would change, things it wouldn't do, things we'd alter in pretty much all of them. And that's our job on this podcast. But on the whole, this was a riotously entertaining show from start to finish in front of a really good crowd with big matches. It absolutely felt like a WrestleMania from top to bottom, which as good as so much of it was, I'm not even sure WrestleMania 10 managed to do. And just watching this at the time when I was watching it live a couple of days ago, I was thinking, yep, you know what? The WWF are on the cusp of something great here. <coughs> and the WWF title is now in the hands of the person who over the last year has done so much to put the Federation into that position. And now he's got the ball and I cannot wait to see where the journey takes them. So yes, I'm going to go slightly higher. I'm going to go an eight and a half on this show. To say that it is flawless would be a complete lie. There are problems. There are matches in which your mileage may vary. But all WrestleManias are must-watch. But this is an absolute give-yourself-up-three-hours-and-put-it-on-right-now watch. Excellent WrestleMania. Eight and a half. I'll come in slightly lower at a 7.5. It's... uh... Uh, yeah, I think Eric's right. Look at the forest, don't look at the trees. There's, there's enough good going on here, and, uh, and the stuff that isn't quite so good is 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 fine. It's a, a show that's not particularly brilliantly booked, but he's booked well enough to the point where you don't really notice it. It's a show that's not particularly well wrestled, but there's enough decent wrestling going on to the point where you don't really notice it. And it's a show also that is as much about, you know, probably more so than a lot of WrestleMania seem to be more about what's going to happen next rather than what's happening now. Um, you know, the finishes of Kane and Undertaker and the finish of uh, Rock and Shamrock were, were were two that, you know, both seem to be aimed at mitigating what's going to happen going forward rather than perhaps providing the most satisfying payoff in the moment. Um, you know, and also the finish of the show with the the final proper and and, you know, kind of clean canvas, blank canvas finish of this coronation of uh, of Steve Austin as the new champion and the number one guy. Um, It's a good show. I don't think it's great. Um, There's enough bad going on here that somehow you're able to forget. And I'll give it a 7.5 out of 10. All right. Fair amount going on on the final Raw of the month. Uh, So much show, we haven't really done a, a, a... a pre-table of it. Uh, Rory, you're going to read it live and, and, and yeah, bring us in on the, uh, there's quite a few things to talk about so bring us in as and when, I guess. Yep, uh, probably about three or four things to bring you in on this one. I will spare you Kurgan and Chains though, so. Thank you. <laughs> never let it be said that I'm not a benevolent type. But yes, the roar after WrestleMania then. It came from Albany, New York. The Austin era has begun. The fans are silenced straight away by Vince McMahon striding to the ring with what is the brand new WWF title belt. Vince, let's cut through all the BS. I know for a fact that you hate me. But that's okay. That's okay because I hate you right back. What you've got to understand is there ain't going to be no you or me. There ain't no we. You ain't going to mold me. You ain't going to break me. What you see, Vince, is what you get. And if you don't like that, tough luck. Well, just for the record, I do not hate you. I am incapable of hate. It's not a word, really, that's in my vocabulary, Mr. Austin. As a matter of fact, 
Not only do I not hate you, I find you to be a, a genuine human being. I find you to be a swell guy. Um, all right, I mean, you know, I, I find you... I love you. I think you're a, you're a hell of a guy. You, you what? You what? You, you said something. What did you What did you say? I, I said I think you're a hell of a guy. Oh, I know you said I was a hell of a guy, but you said something else. What else did you say? I, well, I, I didn't mean that I loved you. I, I just meant I just meant it's a figure of speech. Let's just. Well, no, what did you say? Figure of speech or not? What did you say? No, I just. Let's not get confrontational and spoil this moment, okay? I mean, you're a hell of a guy. I just wanted to clear that up. I'm very proud of you. But you said what? I said I, I said I love you. Put the microphone up to your little mouth before I bash it in. What did you tell me? I said I love you, but I, you know, I, you know, I mean, it's just a figure of speech. That's all I'm saying. Okay, hot shot. I love you too. Now that we got all the gratuitous BS out of the way, all the sentimental crap, what I'm telling you, you can look right in my bloodshot eyes, I ain't gonna do things your way. I will continue to raise as much hell and do things and create as much chaos and give you more gray hairs every single day of your life. Nobody, nobody, especially Vince McMahon, tells Stone Cold Steve Austin what to do, and that's the bottom line. Well, we can either do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, Mr. Austin. And that's going to be your decision. What's that mean? Well, that, that sounds like an important decision, the easy way or the hard way. And if I'm going to be able to be forced to make a decision here tonight, I'd like your definition of what the easy way and what the hard way is. What is your definition of that? It's real simple. The easy way is to learn to be flexible, to learn to adapt, Mr. Austin. And if you'd bear with me for just a moment, please. Mr. Austin, adaptation is a key of life as well as in business. That's the easy way, and quite frankly, the hard way. You're going to wind up doing it my way anyhow. You'll be forced into doing it my way, so that's the hard way. And we don't even need to discuss that. Wow. Like I said, that's an extremely important decision in my book. For yours and my relationship, can I have maybe 10 seconds to think about this decision? By all means.
He is pleased to introduce us to the new champion. The glass smashes and the roof comes off. Vince wants to clear up any misunderstanding. He is proud of Austin becoming champ and representing the company. Stone Cold could be the greatest champion of all time, but they have to do it together. Austin says, screw the sentimental crap. I will continue to raise hell and give you more grey hairs every day of your life. So Vince makes an offer. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is to be flexible and to adapt. Big heat for that. As for the hard way, well, we don't even need to discuss that. Austin acknowledges this is a hard decision and he thinks about it for 10 seconds and gives us his answer by delivering a stunner to Vince McMahon. What do we think, guys? This is the feud now, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, this was the... It wasn't quite the the Vince promo from a couple of weeks before, but yeah, like I, I think Eric touched on something earlier, I and mean, also they've you know they've got to acquire the giant first and debut him. So how long that would take, I don't know. Um, but Austin doesn't really have an opponent now. Um, his main feud is Vince. Uh, I I think from a from an in person standpoint, this will stay over for a long ass time. Uh, how they're going to keep it fresh from a week-to-week TV standpoint, I guess, remains to be seen. Um, but a very, very effective segment. Um, you know, the well, and I suppose also at least Austin was able to actually stun a Vince this time rather than whatever the hell they did about six months ago. Um, yeah, very, very good segment. Uh, these are the two best acts in the WWF right now, and they're putting them front and centre, and it's very, very entertaining. They've now got to find a way of making this into, I want to say money, like, you know, if people are going to tune in and see it, that's half the battle. Um, but, you know, who does Austin face at the pay-per-view next month? I feel questions like that, they, you know, that they're, they're not really answering with this segment, but that's fine. Yeah, go on, yeah, everything that Bob said, and they continue to book Austin brilliantly in that they give him these long segments and they expose him, but he doesn't have to wrestle. And he can continue to to heal and he can continue to, to recover uh, from this neck injury that, that does continue to plague him. And so I think, yeah, continuing with a storyline like this where Austin's involved in a lot of in-ring segments, involved in a lot of backstage segments, but doesn't actually have to put his boots on uh, – Brilliant. Yes, absolutely brilliant from, from any way you look at it. These two are just absolute fried gold together. I mean, Vince, I repeat what I said earlier. Why wasn't he an on-screen heel 10 years ago? Just the little things where Austin gets into the ring, he drops the belt on Vince's foot, and Vince hops around and sells him. <laughs> I'm like, God, just, just, you are an absolute champion, sir. Bravo. And yes, this is, this is the feud going forward. I can see them doing a monster of the month thing and Austin beating everybody who Vince throws at him, which is fine. People are not going to get tired of that. I'm certainly not. I've said before, now Austin is the champion. He's got to keep it for at least, at least the remainder of this calendar year, providing he stays healthy. Vince is the perfect foil for him. But uh, one thing I must ask, guys, what do we think about the new belt? Because apparently it is not popular backstage already, to the point where they're already thinking about doing an angle where Austin smashes it up. And we go back to the old winged eagle. Um, maybe change isn't always such a good thing. What do we think? Oh, they, they look pretty similar. I mean, you know, they, they, they're they now that, seem to... It's not that different, is it? It's like a big... It's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit more circular. It's blue. 
uh, which is a bit weird. Um, Intercontinental title's purple now, which is a bit weird. Um, uh, yeah, it's fine, right? I mean, you know, it's... To me, they look pretty similar. Like, you know, Vince walks out with this title. Austin walks out with his old one. It's like, well, it's a bit more circular, but that's about it. I'm fine with it. I don't think... I I, I think it's... You know, in a funny kind of way, it's more symbolic than anything else. And in many ways, it wasn't really enough of a change to be that symbolic. But the idea is that it will be Austin's title. But I'm surprised it wasn't a little bit more edgier, if you like. Well, and I just think there's so much nostalgia tied to to belts probably for fans and for for wrestlers themselves and so i think anytime you you take such a canonical design like the wing dingle that you saw hogan wear for years and brett and it, it is a, a damn fine looking belt and anytime you change something like that you're going to get pushback because it's, it's just different it's not what we're used to uh but i like the idea of even though it's slightly different it's not a completely new belt i mean giving giving an opportunity for for Austin not to be associated with the winged eagle, but for Austin to be associated with this belt and kind of even further distancing themselves from that Hulkamania era. Agreed. Austin is a very different type of babyface, a very different type of babyface champion, so he needs a very different type of belt. I have no problems with it whatsoever. Tradition, baby. And yes, <laughs> I don't just throw things together. Here come LOD. Sorry, LOD 2000 taking on Jose and Jesus, and they win with the Doomsday device in less than a minute. Just after that has gone on, Kevin Kelly chimes in to say that Vince McMahon has called the police on Austin. Kurgan beats Chains with the Paralyzer. <laughs> That's how I felt watching this damn thing, which is actually a nerve hold. And he then drags Chains to the back with it still applied. Now, I want to move <laughs> swiftly on there, but that means it brings me to Jeff Jarrett versus Aguila. <laughs> Who the hell booked that one? You know, somebody was hitting it a bit hard at the post-WrestleMania party, I think, to come up with that. Tennessee Lee joined us on commentary, and he is as entertaining as ever. Yes, I'm biased. But this match, oh my word, they horrendously botch a missed moonsault spot. Basically, Aguila was meant to miss, and Jarrett rolls into it, so he hits. They mercifully end it with a figure of four at the end. Blackman beats on Jarrett afterwards. They go, no, (laughs) I'm not letting you get away with this one. Bob, Jeff Jarrett. (laughs) They've tried everything with Jarrett. Ever since he only came back five months ago, and he's been the insider shoot guy. He's been the Aztec warrior. He's been the savior of the NWA. And now we've gone back to the first thing that he didn't get over with. The white suit wearing, horse riding, country singing superstar in his own mind. Um, isn't that about time we just cut and run with this guy? Well, they are trying to bring back Ric Flair, so maybe they'll reprise Ric Flair's role from 96 WCW, where he was Jeff Jarrett's number one cheerleader. Um, It says a lot. I I watched this show about three hours ago, and I completely forgot on that segment. Um, Jarrett's, you know, I was probably kind calling him a six out of ten wrestler. Um, He's worse than that. Uh, Yeah, Jarrett's not good. Um, You know, they, they brought him in whatever, what was it, November, October, something like that, and, like, it, it felt like they were going to do something, dare I say, fresh and a bit different, and I thought, yeah, like, if you present Jarrett as this kind of, like, semi-shooty, you know, work off his name, but a very kind of straight-laced character, you could make a, an upper mid-carder out of Jeff Jarrett, he can talk reasonably well, he can wrestle okay, um, and yeah, they're booking Jeff Jarrett like it's 1994, uh, not good. 
What do you got, Eric? It says a lot about Jeff Jarrett when they bring in Robert Fuller as Tennessee Lee, and my immediate thought was, hey, I have a lot more positive memories of 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 that guy than I do of the guy he's brought in to manage, Jeff Jarrett. And it's not like Tennessee Lee, uh, Robert Fuller, uh, what was he in WCW? I've already forgotten. Robert Parker. Robert, yeah, Colonel Parker, that's right. And, you know, they bring in this guy who really is just – a second, you know, a really a manager of, of underneath heels and underneath tag teams. And he's been far more entertaining than Jeff Jarrett has over the past several years. And it's weird. They have to bring in a manager who's not even that notable to try to get some rub onto Jarrett. Uh, I, I don't know if Vince McMahon just has a hard on for Jerry Jarrett or if he has a hard on for Jeff for some reason, or, or if there's somebody backstage that, just that, well, we, we feel like we owe it to Jerry to keep giving Jeff. I don't know what the deal is. If Jeff Jarrett was anybody else but Jeff Jarrett, he would not be given all these opportunities. It's so strange. I just don't get it at all. It's just, that they bring in, bring in the Colonel, which I, well, I think he's fantastic, because I've said many times on his shows before. But even then, they give him the exact same character that he was been playing in WCW for the last four years. We're supposed to think he's somebody different because they've changed his name. You know, that, that's not going to work. And Jarrett, if what... Why do they keep persisting with this fella? He, he gets to interact with a celebrity at WrestleMania. He's, I think he's won every match he's been in this month. Is it just he's still he's, better than like two thirds of their roster? But he's just, he, but he's. I mean, you, you said it yourself, Bob. You overshot it with six out of ten. He's just bland oiler in every single way. Okay, I'm going to be very. I'm going to be charitable about Jarrett now. I think he's somebody who came along ten years too late. The exact same character comes along. 10 years ago, he would probably be NWA champion. I mean, hell, Ronnie Garvin was, right? So if he can, Jeff Jarrett can. But he has... Is it the NWA champion now? Or did I dream that? NW... Uh, he's the NWA North American champion. The NWA yeah. champion, we will talk about a bit later on. So he literally um... has come two year, 10 years too late. They're booking <laughs> him like that. Precisely. But that's just it. And now they've gone back to what didn't work in 1994 during the Dayglow kid-friendly new generation era they they literally will try anything with this guy that um it ain't gonna work okay jeff jarrett is jeff jarrett to quote from red dwarf that is his crime it is also his punishment (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot on this show i'm amazed we've got five minutes out of jeff jarrett we could have inserted this segment into any show in the last 18 months I, I just I couldn't resist any longer. I thought uh, today of all days, WrestleMania season, let's spend five minutes talking about Jeff bleeding Jarrett. This always happens. Anytime we always say we're never going to talk about Jeff Jarrett. Ten minutes later, Jeff Jarrett. See, they've got us. That's what they want. You know, any reaction's a reaction, right? And we're talking about the guy. Right, we've, we've got to move on. Steve Austin, the guy Jeff Jarrett could have been. Right, okay. We go backstage and Austin is being arrested. New York's finest carry him out of the arena with him shouting to Vince, this is one hell of a rib. Vince then comes to the ring to explain things to us, and it's very simple. Austin selected his choice, and damn it, I selected mine. Fantastic. Rock is backstage. He will lay the smackdown on Shamrock again shortly, but for now he is showering fulsome praise on Farouk. They now team up against Ken and Blackman. Rocky walks away from a tag, leading the leader to lose to a Shamrock belly-to-belly suplex. Farouk takes the mic and says no boy grows up to be a man if they cross him. He wants to give Rock an ass-whipping. Maivia limps back to the ring and receives a brief beating before the nation stop it. And then 
Rocky gives the signal by raising his eyebrow and then the nation attack Farouk. Rock is now the ruler of the nation. Eric, we've talked a lot about Rocky today and quite rightly so. They finally kicked Farouk out. He's going to be the babyface in the deal. They're going to be feuding going forward. What do you think? Because I think Farouk's been pretty cold the last few months. Yes. Well, I, I think this is a good. I think this is a good way to to get Rocky like a nice to to get the heel Rocky a nice clean win over somebody who's going to be challenging. I mean, there's no universe where where Farouk should beat the Rock at this point. Um, but you need. You know, you've had the Rock with Shamrock, and they've all every one of their matches that they've had one on one has been, you know, questionable. And Rock has tapped a lot, and he's kind of looked weak from an in ring perspective, which is fine for a heel. But now you have an obvious scenario where you set the Rock and Farouk up for a month or two long month blow off to this thing that's been simmering for a long time, and you put Rock over, and and then the Rock is made, and and Farouk can move on and and do something different or not. Who cares? It's Farouk. He hasn't done anything to this point anyway. But, yeah, I think this is exactly what The Rock needs if the Shamrock thing is done. Put The Rock over Farouk, make The Rock the heel leader of this group, and and, and it's it's the right way to pivot. What do you got, Bob? Uh, yeah, like, I, you know, Farouk's not much of anything. I think most of the nation aren't much of anything. Karma, D-Lo, you know, pretty forgettable. Um, I, 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 <laughs> I think there, that, there. Yeah, um... I think that there's, you know, I think there's some value in having them being fodder for Rock for four, five, six months. Um, but I kind of feel like Rock will break away from the nation and within like two months will be saying, why didn't they do this sooner? So yeah, like they'll be there for a purpose. Um, but Rock's the only guy there with any real value. Um, he might need them for the next few months, but the sooner they get rid of him, probably the better. Or the sooner he gets rid of them, sorry, the better. I think that's where we're eventually going with this. For now, I don't really have a problem with Rocky feuding with Farouk. That's a nice placeholder for the next couple of months of B pay-per-views. Maybe Farouk steals a win in a tag match and then Rocky eventually beats him decisively at the April or May pay-per-view. It's a... Rocky's on the way up and Farouk is already long on the way down. I don't see where he goes after this, whether he gets repackaged. Because Rock has both in storyline and in reality just zoomed all the way past him. Just compare the promos that Farouk was cutting. Rather than the very early ones, Farouk was cutting his leader in, say, the middle of 97 and compared them to Rock's now. And it's just night and day. People just not buying what a character like Ron Simmons is selling. And I don't see fans really getting... But need to be careful here. Fans might well start favouring Rocky in this particular feud. And I think that's a danger because I think you keep Rocky heel for a long time. But uh, just when you consider where they brought Simmons in two years ago, wearing that that helmet, <laughs> looking like some extra from some very, very crap Grecian drama, uh, it's just never really happened for him. He's in-ring performances have not been great. He's clearly out of shape. I don't see this face turn invigorating him. It's a shame because I'm a fan of a lot of his WCW work. I still think him winning the world title on the episode of Worldwide, I think it was, against Vader in 92. One of the best feel-good moments in 90s wrestling. You've got that young black kid in the front row jumping up and down, going balmy. And now he's just this fat bloke who's been completely usurped by the other guy who was just thrown into his thrown into his faction with him and 
has the wind of the business at his back. But it's a shame. But uh, if you stand in the middle of the road, you get run down in this game. Here are Triple H and China. This is the genesis of D-Generation X. Tonight, live in front of the world, I form the DX Army, an army to take care of business that should have been taken care of right from the start. What's he saying, JR? And when you start an army, when you set out to do what no one else can do, the first thing you do is you look to your blood. You look to your buddies. You look to your friends. You look to the click. What? Yeah! Well, look who's back. Apparently there's a new leader in DX. What a night this is! Farouk is out in the nation and now it looks like Michaels is out of DX! No Cole's in jail! Well, this is, uh... Man! Rather controversial to say the very least. And uh, this should be the most interesting comment. And remember, we are live. You know, when you've been an indentured servant for two years, you run up a lot of feelings. Talk to them, kid. Albany, New York, race some hell and make a lot of noise. Thanks first. I got a little something, something I got to get off my chest right now. Uh-oh. I heard Hulk Hogan come out on television saying I couldn't cut the mustard. Well, Hulk Hogan, you suck, pal. <laughs> so I don't think you have any room to talk about anybody cutting any kind of mustard. And Hulk, I got, I got some more advice for you. You better not stop short or Eric Bischoff will go so far up your ass, he'll know what you had for breakfast. Well, he's telling the truth so far. And now on to important matters at hand. I'm sitting at home with my mind on my money, on my money, on my mind. And I get a call from one of my best friends of my entire life, Triple H. And he says, DX needs your help. Well, damn it, Triple H. Anytime you ever need anything from me, pal, you got it. And I got something else to say. 
Kevin Nash and Scott Hall would be standing right here with us. being held hostage by World Championship Wrestling, and that's a fact, Eric Bischoff, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, things are getting out of hand here, I You agree with that too, JR? Where's your DX t-shirt? So the way I see it right now, this is a new beginning for D-Generation X. And we're here to rip ass on the World Wrestling Federation. And it starts tonight. Well, this kid is Paula P&V King. Oh, yeah. By the way, I got two words for you. Suck it. Yeah. He was assured by HBK, as, I, as Triple H calls him, that everything with Tyson was sewn up. He dropped the ball. But don't worry, because Triple H, he picked it up. He will now make the decisions. This is the genesis of DX. Tonight, he forms an army to take care of business. And when you start an army, you look to your blood. You look to your friends. You look to the click. And here comes the kid. Triple H calls him an indentured servant of WCW, then hands him the mic. And our boy Walkman has no apologies in shooting. Hulk Hogan, you suck, pal. Eric Bischoff will go so far up your ass, he'll know what you had for breakfast. And as for Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, they would be standing right here with us if they weren't being held hostage by World Championship Wrestling. The kid got a call from Triple H saying that DX needed help, and he was happy to answer it. The new DX are here to rip ass on the WWF, and if you don't like that, they've got two words for us. Suck it. Wow, Bob, that's us told. I mean, imagine you, you were fired three weeks ago from WCW. You've had, you know, you've been talking with the WWF a bit. You've signed a contract. At all that time and all that pent-up frustration. And the first thing you say, after all this thought and all your insider knowledge, Hulk Hogan, you suck. <laughs> I mean, could you, could you not have given us something a bit more than that? Uh, otherwise, it's very good, um, you know. If uh, don't slam on the brakes too hard, otherwise Eric Bischoff be able to work out what you have for breakfast. That was quite a nice line. It should be said. Should have opened with that. Um, a, a very good get. Um, you know, I don't think he was all that much. I, I think he's more of a symbolic addition than he is like. Uh, you know, I don't look at Sean Waltman as an addition and go, "Well, fucking hell, this is a this is a big puzzle piece." Uh, but I think it's it, it's significant in nothing else that they've got one of the ex WCW guys. Um, you know, we talked. You know, we'd have talked to them a lot a couple of years ago. About WCW being the cool place to be. That wind is starting to change um yeah good segment significant segment um probably the biggest single takeaway from the show i would think uh pretty well done uh yeah uh, two thumbs up Thank you, i i completely agree with the sentiment that this is a symbolic gesture or a symbolic move more than it is uh, something that's really going to move the needle in terms of ratings or momentum or anything like that. Maybe it will. Uh, I mean, we heard in the news and in the reports that there's several guys that are, you know, uh, throughout the card on WCW that are looking to come over. And, and we've talked a lot about the Giant, but you've also got Flair and Regal, who's a good worker and probably has been underutilized with WCW or at least lost in the shuffle uh, because there's so many guys over there. And And then you see Waltman here. 
And yeah, it really does start to feel like the, the, the trade winds have shifted a little bit. Um, and, and this is a guy who went over from the Fed to WCW, never really got much of anything in terms of a push or an exposure. It was just a perfect example of let's get the guy because we can get him and then we're not going to do dick with him. And at a certain point, that's not going to work. Uh, and so if you have these promises of, hey, come back to WWF and we've got room for you, and they clearly need more more guys with some value, uh, with some name value on the card, whether or not you, you like Waltman or you think he's annoying, he's a good worker and he's got a place on the card. And they really need help uh, in terms of depth. Um, yeah, really good, uh, really good sign for, for the Fed, I think. And I think Vince probably just said, Let's let's take some shots over the bow because those opportunities for the WWF to take those those affirmative shots over the bow have have been few and far between the last couple of years. I bet this was absolutely cathartic for Vince. Yeah, he loved it. That's probably why he paid was laid down a contract of three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and he signed somebody who can't even wrestle for at least the next two months. And yet, Vince to see the dollar signs in his eyes when he hands Shaw Walkman a live mic. And he rips on Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. There you go. It's already paid for itself 10 times over. And yes, this was an electrifying segment. This is very important stuff for Helmsley now because he is, he is the leader of DX. When Michaels was barely even mentioned during this entire two hours. It's incredible to think all the stuff he's done. It looks like he's been written out of history. If we don't see Michaels in any shape or form over the next two weeks, then I don't think we're going to see him for a very long time. So yes, this is Helmsley's time to shine. He's had a lot of opportunities in the past. This is his, both his biggest and last one, in my opinion. But if he's going to be in a heel group with somebody who is clearly one of his best friends in real life, then that's going to motivate him. But yes, Walkman, good acquisition. Had pretty much outlived his usefulness in ring in WCW, I would say. You know, he was just knocking around on the fringes of the NWO late 97. Not a good use of him. Here, when he's fit, there are people in there you could put him in the ring with. He could be the workhorse of this DX group, which I think they need, considering who else joins a bit later on. And yes, the WWF have landed themselves a winner here in more ways than one. There is another newcomer, pun intended, coming to the Federation soon, and his name is Val Venus. <laughs> he will penetrate the WWF. Well, I guess you had to be there. After that, uh, he's actually a guy called Sean Morley. He's been big on the indies for a couple of years. Looks like he's going to be doing a porn star gimmick. Yes, I said doing. Ha, ha, ha. Takamichinoko is up against Mark Mero. Before it gets started, Luna challenges Sable to an evening gal match at the next pay-per-view, which she accepts. Mark wins with the low blow and TKO. Straight after the match, people which JR helpfully calls us as three oriental men then burst <laughs> out of the crowd and lay out Taka. It took me back to, um, took me back to December 1989 when uh, Sting was uh, getting a beatdown on a, a Clash of the Champions by the Great Muta and the Dragon Master and JR on commentary. Sting has been ambushed by the Japanese. <laughs> yeah, I half expected Gary Hart to run out with him. <laughs> Even he would have been perfect. Or Gaz, Gazboy would have been perfect. I should say who these three Oriental men are. They are Men's, uh, Men's Teo, Dick Togo and Shoji Funaki of the Michinoku Pro group. So they're going to be put into a feud with Taka. And uh, what was their name in Michinoku Pro? DX. So yes, they might need to change that one before they come back again. But yes, the thing I really like about this is showing that Takamichinoku isn't just a five-six minute warm-up the crowd guy. It looks like they've actually got some storyline plans for him. So all well and good, and all three of these guys can go in the ring too. 
again, thumbs up. It's about moving forward, laying down your plans through the potentially dull, bland periods of April, May until the June pay-per-view. And the WWF are realising that and they're going with it. I approve. I do not approve of the NWA storyline as the headbangers defend those belts against the new Midnight Express. Cornette has his own shooter with him in the NWA world champion, Mr. Dan Seven. The titles change hands after a rocket launcher. Seven then beats on the bangers afterwards. I can't believe they debuted Seven here. Yep, they debuted Dan Seven as the NWA world champion, helping Bob Holly and Bart Gunn win a set of made-up tag team titles. I mean, huh? <laughs> Anything? <laughs> I will, no. Oh, go, Sukona. You want to make a point? I think they're actually the actual North American. I think aren't they actually the tag team champions? Or is this? A, I, I don't know at this point because the NWA is such a clusterfuck. Are these real belts or not? I thought they were real tag team uh, titles that were recognized. I don't know. That's the only thing that I could say is like, not only are they burying the NWA, but they're doing it with their actual titles on their on their own TV show, right? Right. Right. Seven is the NWA world champion, I believe. Am right, I right? Yes. Oh, what a fucking mess. It's, it, it's, it's not worth thinking about. They haven't, so let's just move on. Uh, this is brilliant. Austin, who was arrested, remember, uses his one phone call to call Jim Ross, because you would, wouldn't you? And he's put on the air to tell us that McMahon's ass belongs to him. Next Monday night won't be fun for Vince. You've got to get out of jail first, Steve. Uh, Barrett and Kane are here. Last night, Paul had a dream in which he saw a wrestling ring surrounded by fire. And in that ring, Kane stood all alone. He challenges Undertaker to step into the dream and face his brother one more time. The loser must catch fire. Uh, we briefly mentioned this earlier, but Eric, this is just hokey pokey stuff, isn't it? We don't need to go here with this feud. Man, I'm out. I'm out on this one. I, how, how the hell are you going to get a... I don't, first of all, I don't even know how this is going to work functionally and practically. It's either going to look like shit or it's going to be super dangerous. There's no in-between. And two... If you're going to saddle these guys with a gimmick that's ostensibly meant to keep them in the ring and you saw how plodding and slow their match was at Mania when they had access to the ring, the ringside area, the tables, the shenanigans, the schmas. Yeah, this trying to figure out how this match is going to work is beyond my pay grade as a podcast commentator. Looking forward to it, Bob. He's been waiting for that one. Uh, yes, bit, then, of, bit, bit of Johnny Cash on a yeah. on a Friday afternoon, right? Yep, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that one. But yes, this match I'm not looking forward to unless Onita does a run in. A fire match is not going to work. Our main event of uh, this crazy Raw uh, pits a uh, Cactus and Chainsaw against the Outlaws in a cage match <laughs> for the for the undisputed titles. Because our, our heroes fell victim yesterday of the wrong dumpster rule. You know, to that, that famous one is there on page one of the rule book. <laughs> so, can I, an int. yep. Can I say something on that? Go ahead. I made a note about this. Uh, as the legal uh, uh, contributor to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, I did notice at the pay per view, the refer or the announcer said, you, are, you have to put the opponents in the dumpster and not a dumpster, which does, yes imply but certainly does not confirm that they were referring to the ringside dumpster that's it 
no, nothing gets past this boy, does it? Yeah. <laughs> what is it they say? Never take your work home with you. But uh, you, you've just disproved that theory here, Eric. Well spotted. Uh, this match is not very much because, as we said earlier, Terry took a horrifying bump on a power bomb in the match, and his back was swelled up. Look. No, nobody's back should ever be. So he's quickly taken out by Billy Gunn, tying him to the cage. Uh, Cactus tries to climb out. The DX run down, and the kid smacks Mick, Mick in the head with a chair three times. Very hard. Uh, the Outlaws then deliver a spike pile driver, and they take back the tag team belts. The post-match beatdown proves that they are the newest members of DX. Uh, Bob, the Outlaws and DX looks like a good fit to me. Ah... Yes, but it feels like, you know, DX without Michaels feels ostensibly like a mid-card group, and I feel like they've just saddled them with more mid-carders. No, that's, that, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't mind it. Um, I, I, I think there's pulses and negatives to it. Like, I, I, you know, the Outlaws have done really well against Cactus Jack and Terry Funk, but assuming kind of Funk buggers off and Cactus Jack gets moved somewhere else, um, the Outlaws might kind of lose a lot of their edge were they to not be involved in a group like this. But yeah, DX without Michaels kind of feels like, you know, that they're lacking a little bit of purpose. Um, and I don't know that four mid-carders is better than two. What are your thoughts, Eric? It was never like Jack and Charlie were going to have a demolition type run with the tag team titles. I mean, that, that, that doesn't even exist with real tag teams now. And these are two guys that are well beyond, you know, uh, popularity and skill to be, you know, saddled in the tag team division. So, you know, whatever. Uh, I agree with Bob though, in that the way, the reason DX worked is because you had a guy like Sean who was already over and already independently over. And then he's able to bring in a guy like Triple H who's generating a little bit of momentum, uh, most of that momentum is singularly the responsibility and, and, and China should be praised for, for, for her involvement with that. Be that as it may, DX was good because you had two guys at various levels of the card who could kind of run roughshod. And now what you have ostensibly is just a slightly upgraded version of the factions that we've had for the past year, year and a half. We have another group of four guys like the DOA, like the Los Periquas, like the Nation of Domination, and now we have DX, which is just four jackoffs instead of four Mexicans, or I'm sorry, four Puerto Ricans or four bikers or four, you know, black power guys or whatever. So it's kind of repetitive in in a way that I'm a little bit hesitant to see, like, are we just going to have more of this gang warfare four and four BS? On the other hand, you have Triple H, who's European champion. You have the Outlaws, who are tag champions. You have uh, Waltman, who you could really see working uh, in the cruiserweight division if that's going to continue, or, or working, you know. In, so we'll see where it goes. I'm not heartened by the fact that they've that DX has replaced a dollar with, you know, four quarters essentially. You take Michaels out. And you put him, you try to fill that void. They have, and they've taken a dollar and they've replaced it with like 15 cents, right? <laughs> my, my point is in sports and in wrestling, replacing a superstar with parts that may or may not comprise something close to that superstar is never successful or rarely is. And so I'm willing to give it time because I'm sure they didn't plan on having Michaels out for an extended period of time. DX is a good fit for the Outlaws, is a good fit for for Waltman, and is a good fit for Helmsley. I just don't know if Helmsley's going to be a strong enough leader to make this group relevant at the top of the card like it's been. I think we risk just having another 
mid-card faction. We'll see. I think this is a good move, but I, I'm not heartened by it because I don't know that it helps increase that upper to top of the card depth like we had with DX when Michaels was in it. All very sound points. So I would say that Helms, Helmsley himself would probably like to tell you differently, but he is still a mid-carder. Let, right. let's, let, let's, not, let's not beat around the bush here. He is. He's got to build himself up to the main events. And if you want to look at it with your kayfabe hat on, does it not make sense that he would try to build his own version of DX and break from the past completely? I mean, even if you want to look at it closely, you could even say that this has been coming for a few months. Because if you remember back in December, uh, the situation where the uh, where the Outlaws joined in a beatdown on the LOD, and you've got at the end of the show Michael's there scratching his chin thinking, oh, these guys could be interesting. So it's not as if it's come out of the blue either. I think character-wise they make sense because from what I can tell, I think this DX are going to try to be a cool version of a guy. I don't see them, and I could be completely wrong on this, I don't see them doing too many beatdowns. I mean, God forbid this is going to be just another Gang Wars type thing. I think they're going to stand slightly aloof from all of that. I mean, I don't see them being elevated into any main events anytime in the immediate future. So I personally think it's a decent holding pattern at this time. Michaels looks like he's going to be gone for a long time. So they've got themselves some time to play with. So I think, you say, character-wise, it makes sense. They look like a natural fit of a bunch of four wise asses and uh, a woman out there who will kick the shit out of you if you look at her a bit funny. So this DX version two, I say, I agree with you guys. Let's see where it goes. But I'm pretty optimistic about it. It fits the mood of where the company are going very well indeed. And just to sum up this Raw, tremendous show, excellent counterpoint to WrestleMania. If you can get hold of the tape, I highly recommend sticking it in for two hours. It's for WWF, just letting it all hang out. This is the route they want to go. Everybody's comfortable with it. They've got the storylines down. They've got the angles down. And they are ready for war on WCW now. And they need to be... If we said about very, that it's a WWF, we need to be careful. I think it's our friends down south who need to be looking over their shoulder. But WWF are red hot right now. And I guess that brings us to the conclusion of the show, Roy. Unless there's anything else or anything news-wise we, we missed? No, I think we've covered it all. That's uh, we, we've uh, Two and a half hours, you've covered pretty much the length and breadth of the company there. And as I say, they are flying. Eric Landstrom, Eric, thank you very much. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure again. Good show this time. This time? <laughs> no, I, meant, I meant not our show. Our show is always the best that there is. I meant WrestleMania. Good show. Oh, I see. Days. Right, 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 right. There we go. Okay. After no, after no, after no way out, this was very much needed. Well, that's true. Well, Sapphire Vega didn't even pay the event, so, you know, <laughs> there's that. Um, yeah, probably a good idea it wasn't on that show, actually. Uh, Rory McNamara. Rory, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Right, so, so to, to wrap up, uh, yes, we're running, we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to get early access to shows where possible and say thank you, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 YRS. Uh, three other volumes for you this month. Uh, volume two takes the WCW looking at uncensored. Volume three, the ECW looking at their living dangerously pay-per-view. And volume number four takes the pride looking at their latest MA show. Uh, some fairly important news. This is my last set of shows, uh, this month. Uh, I am, uh, bowing out after four and a half years after a 
I, I, all positive stuff, but just a, a change in, in circumstances work-wise and, and the fact that my interest in wrestling has kind of nosedived, really, in the last six, 12 months. Uh, I thought it was a, a good a time as any to get out, um, you know, kind of like a nice round number, really. Um, you know, well, we, yeah, we, we haven't had him on in a, in a long-ass while, but much in the same way that um, Stuart Brooks in the New Generation podcast from august 93 through until this show and it was bridge the gap for me at least it's it's me bridging the gap the the important bit of news is that that's just me um having spoken with everyone we will be the show will be carrying on i'm still going to edit them so i'm not completely removed uh but between the two chris's and rory they'll be kind of holding the thought from now on and and not to say you'll never hear from me again but uh, i'm gonna take a long ass summer off um so that's the big news uh you can follow me on twitter at bobby bamber you can follow the account on twitter at wrestling 20 rs uh, we're on itunes we're on rsss rsss whatever that is uh we're on uh, wrestling 20 rs.com is our website uh but that's been that i've been bob bamba goodbye